This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, delivering specialty foods and ingredients right to your restaurant, bakery, and bar. Learn more at parisgourmet.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it. <laughs> it's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, gang, just a final reminder. This is your last chance to apply for the San Pellegrino Young Chef Competition. The deadline is April 30th. This is the final show that will air before the deadline. This is my last chance to help encourage you to apply for what I think will be a great experience. Details are available at sampellegrino.com or via the link in the bio on this show's Instagram account. The handle is at Chef Podcast. Please apply, and I hope to see you at the regional semifinals in New York City in November. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am here with my beloved, my spouse. What's the face? I don't know. That just sounded really funny. My beloved. Uh-huh. Okay. Caitlin Friedman. Yes, that is my name. How are you? I'm great. Yeah? Yeah. Why are you great? You had a vacation. I think that might be why I'm great. Yeah, you and our daughter went away this weekend. Mohonk Mountain House. The Mohonk Mountain House in, do we say upstate New York? Yeah, it's in New Westchester, Pulse. New it's York? It's in New Pulse. That's upstate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had such a good time. Yeah. I, I did yoga. Uh-huh. I, I meditated. Uh-huh. I went on like four hikes, yes. five hikes. You, did, you engaged in self-care. Yeah. I feel completely um, realigned. Realigned? Yeah. That's the word that I is use. a term I usually reserve for an automobile. Okay, well, <laughs> okay, I feel not the sexiest realized. comparison, but okay, there it is. There you go. There it is. I feel good. That's why I'm good. Caitlin, I have a great. This is a great show. Is it? This is one of these things we're doing with more and more regularity. Mm-hmm. It is one of these extravaganzas where I went to a conference. Actually, this was called the Anti convention an organization called chef's roll mm-hmm. invited me to be a part of what they called the anti-convention which i kind of love because there's an abundance right now an embarrassment of riches of chef conferences symposiums mm-hmm. gatherings discussions discussions brain trusts they called this the anti-convention which i thought which i thought was very clever yeah it was in san diego they invited me to participate. I moderated a panel 
on Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, which was incredible. Mm -hmm. I participated in a panel about chefs and media, which I actually, this is my new barometer for whether or not these conferences are worth it. Do these talks, symposiums, et cetera, et cetera, convey useful intel? You don't come to these events, but you go to a lot of industry stuff for your industry, yeah, the entertainment the industry. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, right now, yeah, there's... Yeah, you learn something. You actually learn something yeah. that you can take to the bank, that you can act on. Yeah, I, I do like that. that you're right. Where you're not just engaging in what I've now called commiseration rituals. <laughs> like, where there's actually useful information being conveyed. And I will say that the amazing thing about the Chef's Roll Convention, which was, I didn't know until I got there the first day of the event, that because it was in Southern California, in San Diego, and you can do this kind of thing there, the entirety of the convention was outdoors. I would get the worst sunburn. You, it actually was really hot the first day, but yeah, I loved it. I would I die. freaking loved it. Yeah. The, the, it was an amazing setup they had. The, 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 the audience setup was outdoors. The stage was like uh, fit for a talk show. It was like an elevated stage with like uh, loungy chairs and stuff like that. Um, lunch, you know, they had things like barbecue and tacos made to order from the barbecue and stuff like that. It was really, really very, very much of its place. It also sounds really well organized. It was really well organized. Yeah, that always makes a difference. And the, it was a great group of people. So it was hard for me to pick, but I, I selected five chefs to interview and that's what this special is and you know i did the philadelphia chefs conference a few weeks ago it was a three hour plus show your eyes just widened when i said well that. how many i'm just wondering how many hours is this this one? is gonna, it's gonna i haven't finished editing as you and i sit here right now it's gonna be a little under three hours i think okay but here's the thing we are technically beyond mm -hmm. the end of the uh, season. winter season. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a few weeks before there's a new show. So all of you listeners who are looking at this show, it popped up in your queue and you thought, is he crazy? He's doing such a long episode. The actual interviews are shorter than my typical episodes. And this should last you through the break between seasons until our new show starts to show up later in May. I think that's actually terrific. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. So here are the chefs that I picked from the abundance of riches at this conference. I, I tried to be, um, I tried to pick a, a, a group that was diverse and that's, that's kind of my thing, right? And in as many ways as possible, generational, geographic, um, point of view, et cetera, et cetera. So on this episode, I have a conversation with, the legendary, I think at this point, Chef Barbara Lynch of Boston, Massachusetts, kind of, you know, there was Lydia mm -hmm. Shire for years. Lydia's still active. And I would say that the, the, the queen in waiting of the Boston culinary scene is Barbara Lynch. She's got like almost 10 restaurants there. Uh, wrote a wonderful book called Out of Line. Uh, we talk about all this. Barbara and I have a, a really fun chemistry because I'm kind of a geek and she's kind of a tough girl from South Boston. And we both know our places. <laughs> and I know she thinks she could just roll me and take me for all my money if she just wanted to. She she might be able to do that. She could. Yeah. No, and she admits to it. So I'm she saying is, like she, she, she says she that to my it and she knows it. No, she true. says it to my face. Right. She says it to my face. I love Barbara Lynch. So that was one. Claudette Zepeda Wilkins of El Hardin restaurant 
in San Diego. She was a terrific interview. Um, we had never met before. Ken Frank, who's one of the gentlemen on the cover of my book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, he was the original chef of Michael Santa Monica. A lot of people think the original chef was Jonathan Waxman, who took over a few months in. But Ken Frank was actually the original chef. He's. A, are you actually taking a sip of your margarita as I'm doing this show? It's not a margarita. Okay, what is it? It's just straight up tequila. <laughs> well, no, it's tinted. You put <laughs> some the, lime I, juice in there. There's a little lime juice. Little in lime there. juice. Okay. okay. I'll put it. I'll put it down. We're, I don't want to distract. Well, you. it's the summer. The summer is. It's. I always say there's no spring in New York. Right. You go from winter to summer. All of a sudden, it's basically summer here. So in the Friedman household, we are now tequila crazy. It's true. I have a mezcal margarita next to me here. But you're not drinking it. No, not while I'm on the air. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, Ken, for years, has had the restaurant La Toque in the town of Napa in Northern California. I really like Ken Frank a lot. We had a a spectacular interview. Francisco Magoya is the chef of Mexican descent who is part of the Modernist Cuisine Organization, co-author of Modernist Bread, He had done a presentation at Chef's Roll, and he and I had, he's one of these people, Caitlin, honestly, I just feel like I'm lucky to keep up. He's so freaking smart. He's, he's, you know, he's a chef, but he's also half, you know, he's basically a scientist. Mm -hmm. He's super smart. Mm -hmm. Um, We had never met before. I feel like we had a little bit of a bromance. Really? Yeah. Should I be jelly or happy? No, 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 no. He was just a great guy. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, we you know, both kept talking about how much we enjoyed the interview. Wait, I, did you exchange numbers? No, 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 no. He has his people. I okay. never asked for people's phone numbers. I, I just sh- didn't know how, how far the bro No, 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 no. But I, well, the funny thing is we ran into each other at dinner at about 10 o'clock at night in yeah. San Diego later that night. And you're drinking more tequila. I'm just having a sip. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Francisco... He's, I just, we had a great conversation. It was really great. And then he and I were stationed next to each other signing books right afterwards. And we kept talking about how great the interview was. Aww. You know, when you just click with yeah, somebody. I love that feeling. I felt like I made a new pal. I love that. Yeah. I invited him to actually come on the show when he's in New York sometime and do a proper biographical interview because we really confined ourselves to talking about the modernist thing. But the guy's got a great story. Anyway, I think you guys will enjoy that. And Naisha. Arrington of Los Angeles, California, who I had never met. Great name. Great name. That's mm-hmm. an interesting comment. That's a really good name. So we had never met. The night prior to our interview, my buddy and your buddy, Carol Chin, mm-hmm. introduced us at a dinner. And um, I think I, this is another one. I think I made a new friend. Aww. I think Naish and I are going to be pals. That's awesome. Yeah. She's got this incredible, incredible energy. She just recently closed... Her second restaurant that she had to close in Los Angeles, she had the restaurant Wilshire, which she closed a while back. Mm -hmm. And just in the last month or so, she closed Native. Mm. But when you meet her, she's just like, you know when you meet someone and you're like, this person must do like a lot of yoga and drink a lot of water. And they just seem to have this real healthful everything about them. That's going to be me, honey. When? Soon. We're going to be at the LA Chef Conference together next month. But she is just... God, I loved her energy. We had a great conversation. That's another, what do you call it? It's not a bromance. She's a woman. I think it's just a straight up romance. No, it's not a romance. That would be inappropriate. I said it. You said it. You're my wife. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, we've had some nice exchanges. She told me on did Instagram. You guys, did you guys exchange? No, numbers? no, no. But on Instagram the other day, she said, uh, I could have talked to you all day. Oh, and then sweet. you'll know how much I appreciate this. You know what emoji she put next to that? A brain. Oh, okay. Anyway, Caitlin, this was, this is a great little quintet of interviews that I'm sharing here. And here's the amazing thing. This is only the half of it because I'm saving for after we come back from hiatus. Mm-hmm. The guest of honor at this conference was Jeremiah Tower. And Jeremiah, you know, there was a documentary about Jeremiah called The Last Magnificent. Jeremiah, like many people of his generation, all they get interviewed about is the past. Yeah, that's true. But Jeremiah has this unbelievably vital contemporary life that he's living. He's all over the place. He's doing a lot of stuff. He does travel a lot. No, he's at a lot of events. Yeah. He went directly from this event to another one. Yeah. So we did an interview that was exclusively about present day Jeremiah Tower. That's a cool idea. Right? Yeah. And Was he into it? Yes, always. Jeremiah's up for anything. I love that guy. So anyway, we did that. And then I a bunch of people who had been uh, cooks of his at Stars, his legendary restaurant, who are now chefs in their own right, have their own restaurants, did a tribute dinner to him on the first night of the Chef's Rule anti-convention. And I interviewed a bunch of those people about Jeremiah. Oh, that's cool. And I'm in the process of editing all this together into a little Jeremiah tribute that I think will be, even for people who saw the movie, The Last Magnificent, even for people who read California Dish or read the reissued version of California Dish under its name, Start the fire. Mm-hmm. I actually think there will be new things there. That's, so that's, that's going to air. Next season. Well, the next season meeting in a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be a little special thing we drop, but that's it's. Cool. Uh, I think that's going to be great. Anyway, should I get right to it? Yeah. No, I'm not going to get right to it what? because, as I mentioned in the little teaser to the show, Caitlin. You know, I've been very excited about my relationship, my new relationship with Sam Pellegrino. Friendship. Yeah, it's a yeah. promotional partnership. Yeah. I've been drinking San Pellegrino my whole life. I know I don't just say that. You know it. You And now Taylor's drinking it. And now our daughter's <laughs> drinking their sodas, actually. I'm talking about San Pellegrino. The the water, the water yes. which as you know forever when I go to a restaurant. That's what you're ordering. And I'm feeling fancy. Mm-hmm. That's what I order. I don't drink that New York water or however people refer to that. I drink Pellegrino San Pellegrino. It's true, you do. And, and I, have. I recently entered into, and I'm just tickled about this, a promotional partnership with them. Their young chef competition is happening. It's it's sort of a two-year time frame, right? So this year, 2019, the regional winners are selected. Mm-hmm. And then those people square off in Italy in the global finals in 2020, okay? Now... The North American semifinals are taking place in New York this November. And all 10 semifinalists are going to be interviewed on a special episode of this show, kind of like this episode that I'm running today, right? Except instead of it being Chef's Roll or the Philly Chef's Conference or the Cayman Cookout, it's I'm going to be at the San Pellegrino Young Chef Competition North American semifinals, and I'm going to be interviewing the 10 semifinalists. That's really cool. That's that happens, though, to be the least of it. The The main thing is that if you're there, you're a semifinalist for the North American region of the San Pellegrino Young Chef Competition. That's a big deal. 
And whoever wins that will then go on to compete in 2020 in the global finals in Italy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And whoever wins the North American semifinals will have their own episode of this show. One-on-one interview with yours truly, just like, you know, the way we run an episode with Massimo Bottura or Curtis Stone or whomever. They will have their own dedicated episode. Again, that's the least of it. The main thing is you've won the North American semifinals. That's kind of amazing. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just tickled about this whole thing. I'm, I've am i done this a few times. This will be the last time I do it, but the de- this is the last show that runs before the deadline of April 30th, which is the date by which you need to apply. I am just going to one more time remind people that the competition is open not only to people with a chef title, but to most people who have been working in a professional kitchen for at least a year and who were born after February 1, 1989, meaning you're 30 years old or younger. If you're a more mature chef than that, I'd humbly suggest that maybe you recommend this contest to people who work for you or young chefs who used to work for you. You know, people to whom you are a mentor. I think this would be a great opportunity for them. The cornerstone of the competition is you developing a signature dish that shows your personal vision unique skills and creativity for rules details and application visit sampellegrino.com and navigate over to the competitions page again it's the sam pellegrino young chef competition or if you go to andrew talks to chefs instagram page which the handle is very easy to remember it's at chef podcast in the link in the bio you will be taken to a set of links and the topmost link there is a direct one to the application. And again, Andrew Talks to Chefs has recently entered into a promotional partnership with Sam Pellegrino and I look forward to sharing and being a part of more programs with my favorite water in the months to come. Isn't that great? I love that. Everybody wins. Mm -hmm. I win. Mm -hmm. Sam Pellegrino, I think, wins a little. People Mm -hmm. who make the... Semifinals get a little extra oomph, a little yeah. extra thing. Yeah, I think it's all great. It's all great. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I can't wait. Okay. With that, I am now going to turn it over to the first interview of this extravaganza from Chef's Roll. My conversation with Naisha Arrington, my new buddy, conducted on the very early morning of day two of the Chef's Roll Anti-Convention in San Diego a few weeks ago. Here you go. Oh, you got that smile down. Someone just took your picture. That has been practiced. Yes. It comes from the heart. I have a practiced one too, but it doesn't. It looks awful. It's absolutely terrible. We just met last night yes. at dinner. Yeah. If you don't mind me making this the first thing I bring up, yeah. you closed a restaurant recently. Yes. Very recently. Yes. You know, I saw you last night. You you look great, if you don't mind my saying. Thank and you're you. just dressed to the nines. Thank you. Um, you've got an amazing energy. You've Thank got you. this smile that doesn't stop. You seem to be in a very good place. Um, probably more so than anyone I've ever met this close to the shuttering of a restaurant, which yes. is painful. Yeah, it's Personally very painful. Can you talk to me about just how you're doing? I love that you asked. So I've been cooking... 16 years professionally now. Um, 
mostly in Michelin kitchens. Yep. Um, this is my second restaurant. Yep. And we were just under two years of operation. The space was very difficult. It was very challenging. We had a lot of um, plumbing and piping issues that we thought we sorted out early on and they sort of resurfaced and um, rising costs of everything, yep. commodities, healthcare, minimum wage, um, a lot of a lot of overhead and yeah. it didn't it became very apparent to me that it wasn't going to make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and as I'm fairly still young in my career, yeah. um, I want the 10 year plan, you know, um, yeah. I'm, I value life and I value time and business. Yep. And I consciously always aim for upward mobility in my career. Yeah. This was restaurant two. Very proud of it. Um, it has a lot of um, deeper meaning to life than just four walls that serves food. Yep. Uh, the restaurant is called Native, mm -hmm. and it really celebrates people and culture um, and storytelling on the dinner plate. So I will not ever continue being passionate about that seed. And it takes a very disciplined mindset to say, you know, it didn't work there, but that doesn't mean that it won't work for me somewhere else. Sure. And that I get to dictate my life, you know, and um, I just, I want to spend my time wisely. And I knew that it wasn't going to work there. And um, I have to say, while closing the restaurant was difficult, sure, you know, I, I'm a big believer in um, failing upward. Okay. Um, but what hurt the most about that um, is the team. You know, I, I built... Um, an amazing team there and yeah. the kids that I cooked next to on the last day of service I will have in my life forever and constantly check on them and make sure they're in good kitchens and, uh -huh. and pushing themselves and I will always continue to um, have constant gentle pressure in them as my mentors have done for me but I have to say the reason probably why I'm able to put that into one bucket or facet of a life experience is I, I did wholesome things for myself you know I went to Belize and I hung out with the people of Belize and immersed myself in the culture for 10 days there and learned a lot and first saw time there? for first time there and we shot this awesome documentary there. oh great yeah and I went to four different islands and um, I just got back three days ago so okay. um, I think that probably has a little bit to do so with So you're the not glow. sitting on the couch <laughs> yeah, feeling sorry for yourself no. and watching daytime television? Quite the opposite. <laughs> I feel very liberated. I get to yeah. be here with you and talk about the good things in life and yeah. sit and watch Jeremiah Tyra be celebrated. Yep. And, um, you know, I, I, like I said, my it, it, it ends with me and um, I will ne I'll never stop being passionate about cooking. Great. There's a million things I'd ask you about that oh. if I knew you better, but I don't want to dwell yeah. on the past, right? Yeah. But you're background in terms of your family's uh, sort of tendencies toward art and music, um, your own personal trajectory. I didn't know there was such a thing as the culinary program at the Art Institute of California. Yes. So there's been a, and I'm just going to say this because you wouldn't know this. We talked before the show, and this is often the case. You're not a regular listener to the show, so there's no way you would know this. But there's been an ongoing periodic discussion that happens here on whether or not cooking is an art mm. or a craft, mm. right? Like we had 
Tom Colicchio on recently. Mm. You you spent you did some Top Love Chef Tom time so much. But you know he has a restaurant called Craft, yes. right? There are people who have said you know cooking has there there are elements of self expression which kind of make you think about art, but that ultimate most chefs I've interviewed seem to lean toward the craft yes. side. Yes. If you had to pick one or the other, yes. I mean at some level it's just semantics. Who cares, right? Sure, it is what of it course. is. Yeah. But you very specifically, you've actually done dinners called Food is Art. I have. Yeah. I can you can you just speak? If I throw it out there this broadly, how you think about food in that context? Yeah. Well, um, I love that you asked me this question. It's Thank something you. that is very organically that uh, has resonated in my life. Um, I grew up painting and sculpting, and I still do today. I actually started a painting last week that I'm really excited about. Um, I feel like to say something is art, you are looking at a subject... Um, and, it, and it's an intangible thought that you then create. And by creating that and making those connections, you're using a medium, right? So for me, it's food today. Tomorrow it could be acrylics. Mm -hmm. um, so in, on the perspective of art and looking at it through that lens, I believe that it's art because you're using food as the tool, as the facet to create. So then instead of yeah maybe color but you get to play with temperature you get to play with texture you get to play with um you know mouthfeel and um and, and all a sense and aromas so those are different mediums to use to create an experience that's not just vis visual it lives in the soul it lives in the mind it it, it can transcend someone to a place uh -huh. and those are very powerful things, and I, I, I like to call them food data. I think that um, when someone enjoys a dish, that lives in the soul forever. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here with you today, and I can say, oh, you know, I, I had this amazing croissant with Andrew, and oh, was that the chef's role? And, you know, and then you start to think about the layers and the flavors and the textures sure. that someone put as their craft you yeah. know, to apply and make it an art. I, I believe that there are linear facets and parallels through craft and art. I think being an artist is a craft. A craftsman takes pride and passion in what they do. Um, this, so, that's the thing it takes to realize what's in your head. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So for me, I just happen to also be a visual artist in terms of using watercolors, acrylics, different mediums um, to create art that might sit on a wall and then art that might sit on a plate. So people have said to me, I'm not arguing with you, I just want your response to this, but some chefs have said to me, like everything you said, yes, but then there's the, uh, two things, right? One is it has to taste good, right? Of course. And, and then for most people, that's the most important thing. Um, and the other thing is that you are limited in your medium to things that are edible, right? Um, so my question is for you, like hearing you talk just now, like I would almost, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it would almost seem to me that you might say that that's just one other um, part of the medium what is exactly? the flavor. Like how, I mean, you think about art sometimes, how it's going to reach somebody's eyes, right? Uh, does that deepen it in your mind? Well, Do you, yeah, does I mean, that I the think, question make sense? No, it makes, it makes as sense. As opposed to limiting it? As I, as I understand, and um, what I had mentioned is, there are different facets in, okay, so if you use a plate as a canvas, a, a chef uses texture, temperature, 
you know, um, those types of things as their medium, which is synonymous with flavor, which is, I think any chef really wants their, their guests to have an experience, you know? So in that respect, I see it as an art. I don't, I don't think that they're two um, different things to say that, you know, flavor cannot be an art. Yeah. I think there's an art in creating flavor because when you put a spoonful of something in your mouth, your your brain is receiving that as temperature, flavor, texture, yep. you know, salt, fat, acid, all those things, which it takes, it's it's a lot of things. It's chemistry, it's... It's 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 a lot of you know understanding the genetic makeup of a product, yeah. and all of that. Sure, is craft. I think it's a synonymous term. Yeah, and art to to master your craft. Um, and I also feel though that chefs operate on such a high level of understanding that it's different. I mean, an artist, a visual artist, is not going to go and approach a dish cooking the same way a chef will sure but a chef can approach art as an artist would yeah because they understand craft and what it is to be a craftsman yeah you talked a minute ago thank you for all that uh, you spent some time you just alluded to it it's a pretty fancy kitchens uh you spend a bunch of time with josiah citron in los time. angeles um was it robichon i went yeah robichon latelier and yeah. mansion yeah um what drew you to those kitchens and what was it like being there and and you know as someone of your generation spending time there yeah well on the opposite subject of um of being an artist um i i identify a lot of my dna and who i am as being a chef um when i started cooking in 2002 i said to myself when, first when i was in culinary school i said like this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I want to do it to the best of my ability. And then it kind of became daunting. I was like, wow, there's so many things. Like, here's this one thing. Here's mushrooms. Oh, my God. There's like an entire world of mushrooms. Here's, you know, animal protein. There's an entire world of butchery, you know, and understanding that I wanted to know every single thing. I really want to master my craft. And that's what gets me out of bed early in the morning. It's what keep me up, keeps me up late at night. So... As I thought, wow, like what can I do to love going to work every day? Yeah. I didn't know the answer to that. Yes. So I said, what can I do? I, I think I'd like to do it at the best level and, you know, and then end taco spots on the beach, you know, I think, and everywhere in between. Yeah. And that's what I did. And that's what I did for the first 14 years of my career until I opened my first restaurant. Um, because I like cooking. I wasn't in a rush, you know, and not to say that my generation is different from the next generation, but I'm not an instant gratification girl. I like to put in the work. I like to see the fruits of the labor. Yeah. I like to strengthen the roots. And so for me in my, I don't know if OCD is the right term to say, but in my brain, I operate very well in those kitchens. Like this needs to go here every single day. That needs to go there. This needs to be right here you know these three steps need to happen before you even think about executing this my that's just how i'm wired yep. so that i operate very well in those kitchens and i don't have a big ego like i came up in martial arts and i have a very disciplined mindset so i'm and i played a lot of team sports growing up so i feel like those 
tools and facets of my adolescence honed me to be good in those kitchens. Totally. You, know? you just mentioned two. This is all. It's always interesting to me when a chef had done both because I find very often you find a chef who, as a when they were young, you know, grade school. Uh, either did team sports or individual. Yeah. Okay. Now you did both. Yes. You did the martial arts. Yes. And I find very often it's reflected in what, uh, sk- not skills, but what sort of mindset they develop yeah. in a kitchen, right? Yeah. So the the individual sports are really good for sort of you know self expression, confidence, yes. and all that, right? Yes. And the team sports are good for sort of like camaraderie and teamwork and Huge. all that stuff. Can you speak to how these? First of all, what drew you to t- such different? Sports. What was the team sport you played? Well, my dad. Um, I played softball. I played. I played soft. My dad was the coach of my softball team from five until sixteen. Okay. Um, and then, um, and then I played soccer in high school. I was a center forward in yeah. junior high and junior as a junior in high school and, and senior. Um, and then I stopped martial arts because high school. I don't know. You know. Um, and then. And then, yeah, and then I went to culinary school shortly after high school, but, um, and then I joined like co-ed softball teams here and there, and then I'd rally and have like restaurant soccer teams. I was going to say, did you do any industry stuff? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's fun, right? Oh my God, it's the funnest. Yeah, yeah. Especially in California, because you can be outside. There are people who do that in New York, and they're at some indoor like basketball facility, yeah, and it just seems my dishwashers depressing. out there with my servers, yeah. and you know, oh, yeah. that's the best. That's great. Um, but how did the, how did it serve you when you got to a kitchen? How how did it translate the what yeah. you got from those things? Well, um, a lot of it is leadership. You know, um, I am an innate leader, and I. Um, it really came out like as I'm speaking about this, I'm thinking about like times when I was cooking on the line um, before we had got the two stars at Melise, and um, and I was thrown in as the saucier beyond running the line, you know. And I was twenty; I was in my young twenties, and I I haven't thought about this in a long time. And maybe one day I'll write a memoir, and I probably should. But I um. I remember being in the trenches it feeling like at times on the line and learning very quickly you know you have you're thrown into the fire so to speak and you have to adapt right or sink or you freaking swim or you or you fail you know yeah and um and I remember very quickly that if I didn't garner a team around me even as a junior sous chef yeah that I was not going to do my job well right you know um so I had to inspire people you know the the Entremet, the the garmage kids, the stagiaires around me to support me, to strain my stock, to skim my stock for me, or help me butcher, you know, set up my butcher station so that I can execute. And um, and then I turned in that into a love, you know, and I'd start to spend more time cooking family meal for the team, and um, that's where, you know, Josiah was like, you know. And it's something that always stuck with me. He's like, I already, I always know the good chefs by the family meals that uh-huh. they make. Aha! Yeah. Yeah, because I'd always, I loved that, and um, so I think the team sports really helped me understand how to be a leader and how to inspire and work together. Yeah. You know, you pass the ball to someone, that person can score, and yeah, and that's that sort of mindset. Yeah, and also nonverbal communication, right? Oh my God, huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. 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 That's always, I think that's always a kind of an interesting yeah. thing. I think it's the same thing why so many musicians, 
do well when they gravitate because they've been on, you know, they can like with a little look on stage, (laughs) know they're going to extend the song for another 30 seconds, you know, if the jam is going well. Absolutely. Right. Um, So talk to me a little about, um, I'm not, I'm not asking like proprietary, like what your thoughts are, if you have them yet, if you've been started thinking about them yet for what you're going to do next, but can you just talk to me about LA? LA right now, right? Because my impression is that it's changing, that it's got, and all, and really the, well, there are big, obvious to me, negative ways it's changing, which is, um, I'm sure it's a compliment to the city, but all these people that are going there now with concepts that started elsewhere, I feel like that didn't used to happen really no. in LA, almost not at all. No. Um, a few, a lot of things started there and, and got exported. But now things are coming there, right? And um, I don't, I don't love going there and seeing things I can see in New York, right? Yeah. But um, that aside, I just feel like my impression was it's such a huge city, uh, huge cities, really plural would be the accurate way to say it, right? That most people think of as Los, the Greater Los Angeles area. Huge. It's huge. There's um, fair amount of money. Um, you know, it's not as expensive as some traditionally as some other big cities. New York and San Francisco have always been perceived as more expensive. But, you know, more places are closing there now. It feels like it is just getting harder. Now, I should say, much of the time in this interview, your eyes have lit up. You've been smiling. You've been brightening at the mention of sports. I've just brought up this topic and I just ended that question. Your entire energy just like, I feel like I brought you down. No, I'm just... But I, it really... I feel it. You I feel, feel it. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, it resonates because... Can you just speak to it for a minute? I'm born and raised in L.A., you yeah. know, and my parents as well, and my grandparents met in the Korean War. Um, my grandfather was a, sh- a chef in the Korean War and brought my grandmother back to L.A., and they had my mom, and my mom and dad both grew up in Crenshaw area and um, had me, and we moved to the Antelope Valley um, when I was about 10, and um, then I moved to San Monica when I was 17. And I've been, and I stayed with my grandma a lot during that time, but my dad didn't want us to grow up in Los Angeles because it was a little bit gang ridden, started coming around, you know, yep. late 80s. And, um, but I remember understanding that LA had this spirit, and I can't say had, you know, but, but kinda. <laughs> um, it's the spirit uh, to it that is so, um, it has so many facets to it. It's a little bit of grit, but this like elegant grit that is so beautiful. And um, unlike any other place, because of the, the terroir that Los Angeles is as a melting pot. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to see more exponentially in the, la- in the, in the last five years um, than the previous ten uh, have I seen this on flux of people coming from different areas yeah. um, I don't know how I feel about it yet you know I, I kind of had to tap out and, and really get a better perspective because it was a hard year for me um, this last two years I think this was the most challenging years of my professional career um, operationally and 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 seeing what I, what is it that I want to do because yeah. there's no doubt. I mean, I could, I feel like I'm successful at what I do as an individual, but I think it's hard as for operators. You have to find the right right places, and a lot of those places right now, if you're not part of a bigger restaurant group, are like 
downtown, you know, Silver Lake area, where rent's not $25,000 a month like mine was. Yeah. Um, you know, but, which is cool. I think it's really an artsy area, downtown area and all these places. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I, I'd, I would love to not have the essence and the spirit of Los Angeles um, be diluted because it's not as easy as coming in and just being a part of this scene you know like yeah. you said like New York and, and or like you know getting what you can get in Los Angeles and New York but it was a hard year you know we lost a lot of great people and for me people that directly impacted my life you know Anthony Bourdain I remember reading his book cover to cover Kitchen Confidential and then back again when I was cooking on the line in 2005 2006 and um meeting him at Barnes and Noble and rushing out on my one tiny little 20 minute break to go shake his hand and Robichon who passed away not too long after that you know who would walk in the kitchen and now I'm tearing up and um, tap my cheeks and and say like le petit and like you know the cooks always being like why does he only talk to you? <laughs> and, like, and I was like, oh, I work really hard. <laughs> I was going to say, you, yeah. hard, you were working harder you know, than they were. And I had yeah. fire in my eyes, and yeah. you know, I still will. But And then Jonathan Gold, who yeah. wrote amazing things about my restaurant, who truly celebrated Los Angeles. N- not just the big name, the big, not just the big name, the big dollar restaurants, but the, like, and I'm not even going to say mom and pop shops, but the, the, the true identity and the nucleus of LA the dumpling places the taco places yes which I am you know I'm just I'm just a little fish you know and but he saw me he saw my food and he understand from such a deep level on what I was trying to accomplish yeah so it was difficult you know and and now we have new people dictating the narrative and and I think you know it's interesting I'm, I'm I'm interested to see where we go yeah yeah it's uh yeah i mean i didn't know rubishan at all yeah uh, i never met jonathan's weirdly oh, he's just but he's i think most people would probably say the greatest food writer we've ever had my heart flutters when i think about him yeah. how intelligent that man was yeah. and he would come to my restaurant and i'd sit with his wife and his son and i always had him in my mind as a muse like when i was creating or thinking about a dish because He's able to articulate in such a way, but the la- about a month before he passed, we sat at on a farm dinner, and um, this chef was cooking a meal under the sunset, and he sat right across from me, and this young lady sat next to him, and we had the most amazing conversation, and for me, I didn't know he wouldn't be there the next month. Yeah. And but that moment in time I thought to myself, wow, this is all I ever wanted. I was his wife was sitting next to me on my right and he was sitting wow. adjacent from me on my le- on in front of me. Yeah. And I remember thinking and we talked about Robichon mashed potatoes. Uh-huh, sure. Whether a technique <laughs> can be um essentially copyrighted yes. or and how does that live? And I I brought up the the Robichon potato and I said, "Well, you know that you say that and people know that as a technique and can imply you know yeah and it's a chef also yes. so it's interesting um but we had the most compelling conversation and um i was just enamored and uh 
that uh, you know uh, that lives in the soul. It's really amazing, isn't it, when you're able to meet somebody you admire that much, and it sounds like this was the case that night. Be comfortable, like able to just yes. engage them as people. Like I personally met several times. We weren't close friends, but I met I met Bourdain several times, and I have to say, if I'm honest, I was always so. And he's probably the only person in the industry I felt like this about. I was too. It was all me. He was great. Yeah. But I couldn't. I was like a like a kid. Yes. I was like a kid meeting, you know, like their sports hero. Yes. I could barely. I just. I was never able to just hang. Yes. You know. So yes. I, I think that's the only reason I didn't get to know him better. Yes. But it sounds like when you met Gold and spent that you know an extended period of time, it was the opposite of that. That you were able to sort of get to know him a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wasn't in my chef whites and yeah, coming out to yeah right. You know. Yeah. But I always just felt this like. He was just a real human, you know? Yeah. Like a, he just had this golden aura yeah. about him, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's great. Well, let's end on that note. That's yes. a good note. Okay. Thank you very much. My great pleasure, meeting Andrew. You. I can talk to you forever. Oh, well, Man. thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I look forward to eating your food sometime yeah. in the future. I look forward to that as well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and moving right along. These are going to be quick, Caitlin. I know you want to uh, have your tequila... Watch mm-hmm. some television. I really do. I know. So these are going to be quick. Okay. Have you met Barbara Lynch? No. Okay, Barbara Lynch. And I'm from Massachusetts. That's crazy. I see her all the time. Yeah, no, I've never seen her. I mean, anyway. not that Massachusetts is like this tiny little place, but I think it's interesting that our paths have not crossed. All right. Well, Barbara Lynch, I always love seeing Barbara. Again, she is someone who has made no bones about the fact that she feels like she could roll me, take me for all I'm worth, <laughs> leave me in the street. <laughs> in my underwear and uh, move on with all my money and assets. She really believes she could do that. I, I believe she could do with that With Darth Vader-like mental control over me. Okay. Nevertheless, I consider her a friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's anyway, what's holding her back, Andrew. Barbara has done so much for um, restaurants, restaurant culture in the city of Boston. She's a real OG I adore her. Everything I'm saying is just in good fun. But um, yeah, I was glad we were able to make a little time privately to have a little conversation in San Diego. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Here you go. So fun to come to cities that you... I, I've never been to San Diego, so... Ever? Uh, never. Oh, wow. But now we got a new cute cult following from yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you were really, uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the fact that you talk in such a kind of direct way. You don't Trump style? Like? Trump style? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> in, a, in a way, maybe. Um, <laughs> but um, you're very direct. I mean, you're very direct. You're a little bit, um, you don't sit there and agonize uh, over stuff. You don't come off as media trained. I mean, all this is a compliment, but you were flocked with young cooks after so nice. the first panel you were on yesterday who were just dying yeah. to get your adv- adv- advice. I mean, but think about it. when we were growing up, I mean, you know, like Ruth Reichel and all those writers, it was just like, you, you get information from them. I, I mean, I think, this. I don't know, I like being direct, and I think that that's our job now. We're here to... You know, share what we got. Share yeah. knowledge. Yeah. You just never have enough time to get to all of them. But all, the, all the people who all need the it. All the people, like, you know, I mean, I think I spent all night long talking to yeah. people. Yeah. Kids. Yeah. Not not even kids. They're young 
you know, young women, young men ready yeah. to do their own thing. I think it was nice. It was inspiring for me. Do you feel, was that there for you coming up? Do you feel like this know. is a I new so thing? I was so shy coming up. I didn't talk to anybody. But do you think if even if you talked to people, do you think it would have been there for it you? It wouldn't have registered, really. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Because it's, I don't know. I think all of my restaurants have never been restaurants. There's no formula. You know, it's, it's, it's a different, I can't follow rules, basically. And, yeah. And that's why mentoring to me, I feel like, is more like we need a network. We need, we need movements. We need, we need to get going. Currently. Yeah, I, I feel that way. What do you think we need? We need movements. I mean, yeah, but like what, like what, what movements? What, what, um, what would be a focus that you think is? Uh, I think needs the, addressing the mission or the goal would be to get more, get get our civility back, or like we have a say, and maybe we need to unite or come together. You know, these groups like women chefs and restaurateurs, etc. We need to revamp it. We need to like, we need to, we need to support each other more. Uh huh. You're talking specifically women or just across oh, the I'm board? I'm talking all restaurant and hospitality industry. Yeah. Do you it's just going to get tougher. Who's going to open, who, like, who's going to have that opportunity to open as many restaurants as I did this day and age? Right. The, you mean because of the competition? Well, no, it's the cities. It's the, um, I'm sorry, it's the developers, rent. I mean, it, it seems like sometimes you never get a break. We were really talking about this last night because if you say you have oxtail on your menu or um, so East coast, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone's serving oxtail yeah, around point, here today. Like, oxtail was a dollar 99 and then yeah. purvey a seat on your menu and you're selling it for like $17. It's like, you know, the prices yeah. just go up. It, it, yeah. Sometimes you get to that point where fuck, we can never like get ahead. Right. Right. And you know, I think that if there was like a fallback or, you know, just support, whether it would be like a credit union style, chef's credit union, yeah. you know, to, to, you never want to see anything close. You want to see people succeed. I just wish we had the tools to help them. Yeah. Worldwide. Yeah. Well, it's funny. The business piece, I feel like it's, I, I'm told there was, I don't know if that happened yet, that there was something like this in development at the CIA, mm. but the, the business piece mm. is something, you know, so many, it's, one right. of the things that I love about your, what, your, what you do yeah. is that it very much operates in this very, I don't even want to, it's beyond old school. It's like, like a medieval way in terms of like, well, you go on like, you know, cooks go on like a quest for knowledge. That's really how I look at it. You know, mm -hmm. even if you go to culinary school, you kind of go, well, what kind of cook do I want to be? What kind of chef? And you find people who can teach you that in a way that you yeah. learned it, you know, a hundred years ago. And they shouldn't jump around. You know, I think master it. Right. But and I once, mean, yeah, but the thing very often that's not part of that equation mm. is business. Right. Yeah. No one. Sorry. It's okay. My bike ring. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be Jaws. The theme song? Yeah. Um, well, you should have that You should have that ringtone for, you know, people you don't want to hear from. I don't know. My, my <laughs> dog changes it all the time. It's just so funny. I, oh, it's just so funny. Anyway, but business is very often the piece that's missing yes. from that pathway, right? Unless right. you're really lucky. No, that's what I'm, you, there's, there's that jargon too, right? So there's a business jargon. Right. Basically, oh, well, you're going to get like a million for TI. Right. It's not free, man. Yeah. yeah there's, there's reasons why they take some 6% of your sales or whatever. It's, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a racket. And I feel like, like even if chefs just got together and we started buying property. Yeah. 
and helping, like, so build New Orleans up. I mean, there's the fucking labor pool in New Orleans. It's amazing. Yeah. They just don't have work. For, yeah. Like, the starters. You yeah. Know? Yeah. What's it like in Boston right now in terms of staffing? Are you guys having the same issue that they're having, like, in New York or we San Francisco? We have it everywhere, you know, and it's, um, it, 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 we have it everywhere, but yeah. not, I don't think in Boston, we just had a really big flux of restaurants close. Mm. Mm. Everyone seems to have that. Yeah. But I also feel like it's it's time, you know? Uh-huh. But, you know, like, Frank gave up. I mean, he sold less by A, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. All right. And then Cultivar closed. So there was a little... We have staff. But New England, it's like, oh, my God, once summer comes, you know? Yeah. So... What do you mean? Oh, it's going to be yeah, all hell breaks flock loose. To yeah, the islands and yeah. right. Um, can we, let's talk, can we talk about your book for a minute? The last time I interviewed you was over the phone. Your book, Out of Line, had just come out. Uh, you were named like Time Magazine's hundred. What was it? Hundred most influential influential people. people like ten minutes before the interview, <laughs> and still showed up for the interview, which uh, was impressive. Um, yeah. I'm convinced it's because my old co-host was a chef. <laughs> it was just me. Maybe that wouldn't have happened. No. But but um, uh, what's, what was the, what's the experience of the book been like? Having it out there, I'm sure people must be in touch with you in some fashion with what it, you know, what the experience was, of reading it was like. And just if I just throw it out there that broadly, it was you know it's, I'm going to say cathartic, but it, it was actually. Um, it's fun to write it. I, I feel like I say, I, what was that? Two years ago? Yeah, yeah. You work through it. It's so once you write it, you think, oh my god, that, it's over. Yeah. I think, the, but on the road was really hard because you had to relive it again and again and again. Then you had. It's almost like you have a year for it to settle in, but you still walk around with like sort of, holy shit, like what is going to happen if it goes. You know, if it becomes a show or something. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I don't know if I'm ready for that. So I always feel like it's, it's, it's good timing for yeah. me right now yeah. because I look at that as the past, and I'm not living in that world anymore. And right. I'm I'm being in that present mode. Yes. Um, which is just a personal growth for myself, which I'm happy about. Yeah. But I'm I'm ready. I, I could write book number two if I want to right now because what I'm finding now after the first one is that it's just kind of fun to tell your stories. Yeah. If it's helpful. Yeah. And inspiring. Yes. You've heard that kind of thing from people, I'm assuming. I would. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to have. Oh, yes. Having read your book, I think you have yeah. to have. It was so funny when we meet people. What was that? We were sitting at a bar via Corona one night. And then, That's a restaurant in the Greenwich Village, New York. My yeah. <laughs> so there was this young woman here and halfway through the dinner she was solo and we started chatting and then all of a sudden she's like oh I'm so and so and I'm so and so and she's like oh my god like I just finished your book yeah that's fun yeah I mean if it's almost like that school teacher thing if I can get one good student (laughs) right it's all worth it (laughs) yeah so do you has there been a has there been a weirdness to it put aside what you just alluded to which I want to talk about in a second about the possible film thing Mm -hmm. but is there also a weirdness though to have it I mean if someone says you I've read your book right Mm -hmm. they know your your life up to a point yeah and a lot about it um I didn't hold back did I no no well, you couldn't have. Well, I mean, that's the conversation we had a couple of years ago. I always go, did I, 
Did I write about the credit cards we used to steal? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. is that are you cool with that, or, yeah. or is is it even more than cool? Are you glad that to have it all out, you know, to no, just be I that don't. much of a no pun intended, an open book? I think I'm again, like I think I'm I'm cool with that. It settled in. I think it was um, for me, it was really hard, exhausting in ways because I'm more like um, I'm kind of like an introvert. I am really shy, but when I have to talk, like I yeah. I'm committed. <laughs> right. But then when I could go for days and not talk. So, Literally. Yeah. Like yeah. if you're alone. I'm really shy. I'm if you're alone and you're aloft and hanging out, you don't feel a need to get on the phone and gab with no, someone. I'm a total shit show. I've got like 10 <laughs> projects going on. I'm, yeah. You know, but I like it that way. Yeah. yeah. So the book was optioned. Yes, it was. Okay. So for people listening, optioned doesn't mean it's it's uh, happening yet. It means somebody has a lock on the rights for a period of time to uh, do an, a dramatic adaptation of your book. Yes. Okay. And it was Jada's yes, company Productions. has optioned it. Um, and they're looking at like Spring Studio. I mean, it's hard to tackle it because I'm, we want to probably shop it, uh, you know, not a movie, but a film, like a, in between The Crown and Shameless. I don't know. What is it like a streaming series of some yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Half an hour. No, like a mini series. Like a limited series. Yeah. yeah. So each chapter would be so yeah probably have like two years there uh-huh. two or three, I don't know. The second book I want to work on is going to be what my life is like now. Uh huh. And believe me, it's crazier. I think it's a little crazier now. Really? Than growing up. How so? Because some of the shit that happens, it's just like, did that really happen? Like I don't know. It's um. Like what? Can you give me a for instance? Um, a dead guy in my driveway. What? Like, <laughs> that's a chapter because you mean like you went out to get the paper and there was no uh, he um, was on an oxygen tank and I actually cooked one of the best fucking meals ever it was like an auction item and he came he yeah. came to my house there were, uh, three couples or four couples and this particular guy was on oxygen yeah and um, he made it out to his car he made it halfway around the the driveway and yeah the, his wife was like, call 911. Yeah. He's not breathing. Yeah. And I was like, and I was with Kristen Kish and we were both like, fuck. We did all like, we, we had so much fun and we cooked Joelle Rubichon style. Uh-huh. Dishes, old school. Um, and then his wife and I, and I was like, oh my God. And I went out to see him and I was like, did you, did he have any allergies I didn't know of? Oh my gosh. God. He was dead than, deader than a codfish. But <laughs> she then she texted me from the hospital. And she said, you know, he passed away at eleven fifty four. But he died a happy man. It was one of the best meals of his life. Aww, dead guy in the driveway. Wow. Yeah. You know, there's a well, whatever. I was just gonna say, uh, there's a book I think somebody should write. And it just occurred to me you'd be a really good person to write it. For what? About your industry, mm. but no one's written. I don't believe. We were talking about like mentoring and things earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't think we used that word, but I don't believe any any chef with a lot of hard-earned experience has written the business Kitchen Confidential. Right. Right. All that could the be juicy, but not but also highly informative. Yeah. At the exact same time, right? Because it's the juicy things that would be educational. It's the reality that happens. Yeah. I mean that you know I think. It, you're right. But you there could isn't do a book that. Out there. Yeah. I mean, the books that are out there are 
are from college usually. Like, yeah, they're very, right. They're they're hypothetical, non-real world situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that don't tell you things like you know your contract from like no, vanish. No, you know you're good or, when you're getting fucking case studies done on you and like, right from Harvard or Dartmouth, right. and they're like, oh, you're gonna fail, and I'm like. Sure. You know, 20 <laughs> years later. <laughs> um, because I didn't follow your formula. Right. So I think, yeah, no, I think it's, um, it'd be interesting to kind of get a group of chefs together that are independent owners. Like, yeah. There's not too many of us that I'm an independent owner. I don't have a company behind me. Yes. Um, Lydia Bastianich, I think, is the same. And Suzanne Gowen is the same. So that's pretty good for three females, I think. Yeah. And we did it old school, yes. Yeah. Like, Six dollars an hour, four dollars an hour. If you were going to get paid, I mean, I, then I used to have to go and beg for my paychecks. Those are little lessons you need, right? Because it's not going to happen again. Well, that, and then how to like how to smell a bad business deal. Oh yeah, I mean, get the fucking stars out of your eyes because like, yeah, this is you got to think about this as your life. Yes. And if this is what you want to do for the next twenty five years, yeah, then do it. Yeah. Um. What what what's your favorite part of your job? job of being do it whatever whatever it is that you do right now it's pretty far ranging right but what 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 do you really when are you at your happiest right now professionally what is it that you do in all the mix of things you do and mm-hmm. your various projects I, and restaurants and yeah right now it's it's um fixing the challenges that we're faced with in terms of brick and mortar restaurants and you know labor costs and it, it, that's and your favorite thing i love Fixing things. You like problem solving. I do. Oh, problem solving. There you go. I like that word. I like to. That's what you, you don't mean mechanically fixing things. You mean solving. No, I, no there's so many things I want to get. I got to get out of this. Right. To move forward, to create more things. Yes. But I, I won't do it until I'm really happy and satisfied that all my restaurants are running and that we're next going on our junior management and young CDCs. Let's shuffle them around. Never be complacent. And so. It's almost like, and thank God we're busy too. You know, it's busy. But once they're running and they're great, then I can move forward with what things I've probably been working on for the last four years, but we weren't ready. Yeah. When you say working on, are these things that just exist in your head or these things you've actually actively talked about with your team? Not yet. We're we're here doing a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, In the next couple of days, major changes. Like, it's not going to be a Band-Aid one. It's just... Got it. You get a... Not changing be of who I am or what my food is. It's just um, working on new projects. Uh huh. I can't tell you yet, though. I'm not asking. Okay. I wasn't. Yeah. No, I know when. Don't to, try to get it. Out I know when. Answer. I know when to back off. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with you. I feel hopelessly square when I talk to you. Why? Can I tell you that? Why? I do. You don't probably remember this. You and I, when we interviewed you about the book, uh, you made some comment like you said to me. Uh, <laughs> This is my Jimmy Bradley, who I used to do the show with. He thought this was so funny. He said, uh, you said to me something like, well, I could talk to you now, Andrew, because I know you. And I said, I said, you know what, Barbara? I don't, like, we've seen each other a few times, but it's always like at a panel thing or a conference. Like, I don't really feel like we know each other. And you said, no, no, no. I mean, I know you like I could manipulate you. That's what you said to me. Like, I could get you. I could get it right. That's what I mean by feeling square around you. <laughs> Come on, Andrew. We're going to go do a drive-by fruiting right now. No, I like... That's what I mean. That's the kind of people I love to hang around with. I could get them to do anything. And, yeah. And then you always have good takeaways the next day. So Yeah. Life is... You know, I think life is amazing. And I think what I like to... 
yesterday was that what I noticed in that whole audience was um, they have passion. Isn't it great? Yeah. Do you feel the same way when you go to culinary schools? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I well, love... Well, they're so lost, though, in school. Oh, that's Don't interesting. Forget, they're like 18. They're young. Oh, because they're so young. Yeah. I mean, and I think they're young and they're also nervous about um, paying back loans. You know, there's a lot of stress on them, too, when they're that young. Yeah. And you're trying to take as much information as you can. I just, yeah, I don't know. To me, there's just, though, I've never picked that up, but there's such an eagerness. They're so sincere. Mm-hmm. Um they're so on, you know, their optimism is unspoiled. But I just, you know, you talk at a culinary school, like you were on a book tour, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've been on a book tour recently. You know, you know what I don't see at culinary school? I don't see people texting when I'm talking. Oh, that's true. I there don't you know. see people on their, do, you know, on, on their phones. I don't see people having little whispering side. I see people who are really want to know right. and soak up whatever you can offer them. Right. Some and that's what that's what this that's what this feels like. Imagine learning all day long, but then you can't go home to your little apartment and cook dinner. But if you're in a dorm, you know that must be frustrating. But um, yeah, they're like I tried to say yesterday. This is the fucking time. This is a really great time. You, Not only just for chefs and restaurateurs, but for food science. Um, it's a pioneer world out there with edibles. With it's changing. Yeah. And that's a good change. It's a big change. It's like, in terms of you can take your passion and create whatever you want. I mean, yeah. the, there's a good opportunity for that. Well, it seems to me there's also more ways than ever to be a chef, right? Like everyone's talking about how hard the big cities are and how how hard staffing can be. But you know, you could also you could also do a food truck. You could also become you could open a kiosk and you could open a yes you could become a pop-up chef and travel around and do your take your show on the road i want to do as seen on tv (laughs) and make everyone else cook did you want the hot dog or the roast chicken or the air fried but that'll be 40 bucks (laughs) but that's increasingly becoming a real category i know i know. know and technology too i mean kitchen equipment it's a great time to we have you know there's talented people in this industry yeah really talented and they just have to you have to know it. Do you feel like you're, uh, having come up when you did, uh, do you feel like you, like all the things you just said, I feel like there's people who kind of are very much sort of intimidated and off-put by like the new. No, they're afraid. They're like, oh my God, afraid. so needed. Afraid, that's a good word. This is so easy. Why hasn't anybody else do it, done it? But It just can't be right. But so you seem to be to very, fall. you're drawn to it still. You oh, seem yeah. to have a very youthful attitude toward innovation, new things, change. You seem very much unbothered by it. It works for me. Yeah. And so, like, it's it's the mind thing, though. You just got to believe in it. Yeah. And as wacky as it is, it's probably great. And yeah. I think any sort of entrepreneur with a mindset like that yes. would, would like to do that, too. Great. All right. Well, I'm sure you want to stop being interviewed and get out there and eat some lunch. So thanks for giving me uh, a half hour of your time. Thank you, Andrew. Good to see you. Great seeing you. All right, Caitlin, we're moving right along here. This next interview is with Ken Frank. You've not met Ken Frank. No, but I helped transcribe your book. Yes. Do you remember that? We were up at a lake house and I was like, let me Well, it wasn't my book. It was when I was was trying to sell the book. Yes. I had been doing some interviews this was a moment in our lives. You were between 
you were like at a crossroads. You weren't working. I know, and that's not me at all. That's not you at all, but you weren't working. Yeah. And I had done some interviews with some people who I knew would be in the book, and you volunteered to transcribe them for me. Yeah. That didn't last long. No, I did you three did, days. You did a couple. You did Susan Feniger. You did Ken Frank. Yep. You did Michael, Michael McCarty. Yep. And I loved Ken. I, I remember like when I was transcribing the stuff, I kept going like, this is a great interview. Well, here's what I love about Ken Frank. First of all, he's really found a home for himself. He's been at this restaurant, La Toque, which was uh, originally a Los Angeles restaurant. He sort of became disenchanted with LA. Uh, we talk a little bit about it in the interview. Moved to Napa. And he's just like found this perfect space for himself. And he's very happy. His wife's amazing. Um, uh, he's just a happy dude. You know, he, he really, he, he's comfortable. Well, he lives in Napa. No, but Let's it's more there. than that. He's comfortable in his own skin. And he, he's very open about the kind of guy he was when he was very young. He was sort of known as an enfant terrible mm -hmm. in Los Angeles back in the 70s, as most people would be. If you were like 21 and you were a famous American chef before there was such a thing in L.A. in the 70s, I think right. it would go to your head, too. Mm -hmm. Ken's very open about all that. Unlike a lot of people, he doesn't try to sugarcoat it or BS his way out of it. He's just very frank about his learning curve. And I really like Ken a lot. Anyway, this is uh, we. he was on a panel we did about my book there. And then we've, you know, sat down and we did a private interview, which I think is uh, kind of uh, very much typifies Ken's personality. I think you'll get a real sense of him. So anyway, with that, here you go. Me and Ken Frank recorded at the Chef's Roll Anti-Convention in San Diego. We're in a borrowed space. We're squatting at Chef's Roll. Um, can you just tell me, though, this is something I didn't know about you. We were doing the sound check and you said you had radio in your past? Uh, when I was in L.A., I had a uh, one-minute radio show five days a week on the um, jazz station, which later became the classic station called Ken Frank's Chef's Tips. It was sponsored by supermarkets, uh, and they, they ran the show every day at 11.30 when people were beginning to get hungry. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun, and it taught me how to write, because when you write a minute of radio to open, develop, hook, and close in 59 and a half seconds... Takes a little practice. You did all that yourself. Oh yeah. Now back in that day, you wouldn't have had a publicist. No. How did that? Do you remember how it happened? You have just did you have some customer who was like in the radio business? Well, or the supermarket business. Originally, the podcast it was a, a one minute show that they had Ruth Rachel doing. Oh my but god. But when she left Los Angeles to move to New York yeah. to take over the spot at the New York Times yeah. and the LA Times, the owner of the radio station, Saul, was a friend of mine, and he asked me if I would if I would take it over and I did it for about three and a half years oh my god so I'd go in once a week and tape five one minute pieces okay uh, which then, you wrote yourself which I wrote myself you know and you learn to use bigger fonts and double yeah. space it and you practice it yeah and, and then with a little practice it's so you treated it very yeah. seriously oh yeah I, I still have probably three or four hundred scripts oh really yeah oh that's fun um, alright Ken so we obviously you and I know each other through the, my book you're one of the gentlemen on the cover of the book. Um, but even though I tell your story in some detail, I'd love for people to hear it from you. You grew up near the city of Los Angeles, but not in Los Angeles proper. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about how you grew up, what your folks did, um, and that fateful 
time overseas? So I grew up in San Marino. I grew up in the house that was built to raise my dad in, that he grew up in. Um, and my earliest memories of, of cooking are actually with my grandfather on my mom's side because I would often spend weekends at their house and he taught me how to weld, he taught me about electricity, and he taught me how to you know, develop film in a darkroom. He was this amazing guy. Um, he's the reason I still fix all of the equipment in the kitchen because it's just, I've been fixing things as long as I can remember. But he was also a really good cook. And he'd grown up on a farm in the San Fernando Valley, near where the Burbank Studios are now, um, in the 1890s, um, when there were two farms out there and one road, and it was a dirt road. And uh, so when I spent weekends at my grandparents' house, you know, we'd get up early and we'd make breakfast. And we would almost always make pancakes, but he didn't make pancakes. He made flapjacks. And if you don't know what flapjacks are, those are pancakes that you flip up in the air and you catch them in the pan. And when you're seven or eight years old, that's pretty freaking magical. Now, wait a minute. Is, but does that affect the end result? Uh, who knows? So those are <laughs> when, when your grandfather can flip a pancake yeah. in the air and catch it in the yeah. pan, yeah. he's the best right. thing ever. Right. So I, I've, I've always loved food. I've always liked to eat. Um, I didn't grow up in a house that, that ate particularly well. But when I was 15, my parents were both teachers at a very prestigious private school in Pasadena. And one of the school's very, very generous benefactors had given them a large grant of money uh, the proceeds of which were to be used to fund one teacher per year to live off the North American continent with the goal over time of making a more worldly faculty, which is a very noble goal. So in 1972, my dad won the second Dudley Wright grant and moved my entire family, I'm the oldest of five, moved all seven of us to the village of Ivoire on the French side of Lake Geneva, about half an hour outside of Geneva. Um, it's a village of 307 people, this 16th century village that is a national monument where you were either a steamboat captain, a fisherman, or a hotel keeper. I went to French public school, uh, had an awesome French girlfriend who's still a friend to this day. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And uh, I desperately wanted to stay. And so my parents said, well, get a job and you can stay. Same day, found a family to live with. Um, and got a job as dishwasher. So family yeah. moved back, and I spent what would have been the year between my 10th and 11th grade years in high school working, starting as a dishwasher. And after about six weeks, because I, I, I work hard, uh, they gave me the choice of moving into the dining room essentially as a busboy or the kitchen as a slave. It's like, no, I'm going in the kitchen because I've got to learn how to make this food because if I go home to hamburgers, I'm going to starve. Yeah. So question for you. You mentioned that flapjack thing, right? Now, you mentioned, you know, you always kind of liked food. Um, but, you know, that whole, the, you talking about flipping that pancake in the air, right? That also speaks to uh, something I think a lot of people end up cooking like, which is the the, the finesse of cooking, the... I don't want to. I don't want to say anything that might sound derogatory because I don't mean it that way. But you know, when people start getting really good with a knife, you know how fast you can go. You know, some kitchens people have like little competitions on the spur of the moment. Was there an element of that that appealed to you, like of mastery of, you know, the mastery of craft, of the ability to sort of, you know, as they used to say, impress your friends? Well, th there is a certain satisfaction when you do something you love to do 
and and when you really master it and it becomes natural it becomes easy you know cooking is not hard it is not rocket surgery it's lots and lots and lots of practice and you have to love what you do it has to be what you want to do do you believe that's true for any do you think anyone can learn how to cook no because i know for a fact that some people simply cannot learn how to cook mm -hmm. and they're rare but they do exist. A few of them have tried to work in my kitchen and you quickly realize, wow, they're just never good. And you can tell very quickly, even if someone doesn't have a lot of experience and even if someone is not a very good cook yet, when someone is going to be a good cook, they take to it very easily. They learn quickly. The way they hold things, the way they do things, is it's comfortable to them, it's second nature to them. Uh, and we get, you know, young cooks come in with very little experience, but who have that kind of talent. And within a couple of weeks, we've we've got them going down the road of learning, and it's it's really great to see. And sometimes, it's you know, after six weeks, you go, "Wow, not gonna happen." Yeah, is that hard for you? No, it just you feel like is. you're almost doing them a favor. Oh, you know. Lots of people want to be cooks, right. and, and I think it's really important, especially for young people today. You know, people ask me all the time, you, you, my son wants to be a chef, will you talk to him? And, and my advice is always get a job. Don't, don't talk about what culinary school you're going to go to. It's way too early for that. Get a job. Make sure you love working in a restaurant. It doesn't even have to be a good restaurant. Any restaurant is fine. A better restaurant is better, but just get a job in a restaurant. Start working 40-plus hours a week. Start working Friday night and Saturday night while your friends are out having a good time mm -hmm. uh, for a little money with people likely yelling at you. If, if you're born to cook, you will quickly realize, this is what I got to do. And then, then if this is what you got to do, if you want to spend your parents' money and go to culinary school, go ahead. But chances are you'll realize that, like myself and like so many others, just keep working. Work in good restaurants. Work hard. Keep learning. Uh, get paid to learn how to cook. Mm -hmm. Because I see so many people go to culinary school, and then they graduate, and they go, okay, I'm a chef now. No way. You're not even close. And it, it takes a long time. They've got a lot of debt. I mean, I, I have a, a sous chef that worked for me for about eight years. He... Um, started working for me up in Rutherford uh, after he had done like a six-month stage out of culinary school in Las Vegas, working for a very famous chef who shall remain nameless, uh, where he had been essentially just forced to peel potatoes and peel vegetables for eight hours a day because he was cheap labor. But this is a kid who was a great cook, superhuman. But, you know, he worked for me for eight years. He, he ended up graduating out the very top of the kitchen because he had worked every station and he'd run it and he's awesome. But he had to pay off like $50,000 worth of debt and he was making $15 an hour. You know, so it helps that he's disciplined and he got there because he'd sock away $400 a month, $400 a month, $400 a month. But that's hard to do and that's... He could have learned just as much working for me for eight years as he could have by going to culinary school and, yeah, right. and, and getting a bunch of debt. Because, you know, this is so many young cooks burn out and aren't doing this by the time they get into their early 30s that it's, it's a shame to invest all of your 20s mm. in something that's not going to work for you unless you've already determined early on that this is what you've got to do. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the early days in L.A. Because you really were, um, this is... Long before Michaels comes along, you 
in your early 20s were a known quantity in Los Angeles, a known chef at a time when there were very few American chefs of any renown. Um, I, I believe personally, and I just would love your take on it. I mean, first of all, you had the chops, but also, you know, you you're one of the few people of this era that we would not call a career changer. You discovered the kitchen and committed to the kitchen earlier than a lot of people, you know, that were sort of within a couple of years of your age. So, yeah, I, I started cooking the summer I was 16. Uh, and then I, when I came back to the U.S., went to high school for my 11th grade year, I worked at a local ski resort on the weekends slinging hamburgers to make the money to go back to France because, one, I had such a great time living over there you know, with this family and working and you know, being essentially emancipated as a, as a teenager, which was great. Um, so I've been working, you know, when I came back from my senior year, I got a job after school in a really good French restaurant in Pasadena. Uh, so I've been working full time since I was in high school. And originally it was, you know, I figured this is great because I'm making money, now I can pay for college. Because originally I wanted to be a doctor or a marine biologist. And I could still do the marine biology thing. And, you know, I indulged my inner Jacques Cousteau with my reef aquarium tank. But, you know, it, it wasn't going to be a career until I went to UC Irvine. You know, I was working then in a really great restaurant in Newport Beach because wherever I went, I ended up working in the best restaurant. Um, and that's an interesting thing that, yeah, an 18 or 19 year old kid who mostly just spoke French and knew how to make soup could get a job working in almost any restaurant at the time. Uh, but once I started college, it's like, no, I'm working to put myself through college and I like the work better than I like college. And I think this might be a viable career. And it was really, really lucky that the time that I thought this might be a viable career was in fact the very, very beginning of when that was true. In this country? In this country. It, what gave you the confidence in that? I mean, you'd been to France, right? So you had seen the Nouvelle Cuisine thing happening. Oh, yeah. oh. But my, was that, did you think, oh, that's eventually oh, going to seep into the U.S.? Paul Bocuse was my idol. Yeah. Freddie Girardet, who had just started to become known, was my idol. And yeah. I, that's who I wanted to be. Right, but did you, is that what gave you the, did you believe it was inevitable that something like that would happen here with chefs getting more well-known and... I didn't... I, is I it just, a, just an instinct? I don't think any of us thought that chefs would become the celebrities that they are today at that time. But I certainly felt very strongly that it was a new age where being a chef was in fact a reputable thing to do and an interesting, exciting, you know, intellectual pursuit as well, something that could be, in fact, noble. Uh, even a few years earlier, being a cook would have been considered a very low-class job, mm -hmm. and being a chef would have been considered a dead end. Uh, restaurants were still always owned by owners and not usually by chefs in this country. So I was literally in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, wherever you went, you ended up, you know, working in the best kitchens, right? There was, there was a dearth of really good cooks around um you know i when you, when i hear about guys like you I, I it almost seems i almost imagine like old gunslingers or something you know that you could sort of or or um you know or um uh not like hip men but you know someone who kind of strolls into town heard i heard you're looking for a few good people and you know could sort of 
it was it seemed like a highly marketable skill in a very finite group uh group of places well it is still a highly marketable skill as barbara said during our little talk earlier today Barbara Lynch. You know, Barbara Lynch. Yeah. You know, when she started cooking, her, her, her main goal was, if, if I'm a cook, I'm always going to find work. I was never unemployed for more than two or three days at a time. It was never hard finding a job. And, you know, with the job market today, uh, any cook who wants to work is working. And if they don't, they're lazy and they shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a cook's market today. But you know, back in the back in the seventies, it, it it speaks to the level of of cuisine that was accepted as good then versus now, and this is something you alluded to in the talk earlier today as well. The level of knowledge, the level of experience um, that cooks in this country have today versus forty years ago is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the fact that when I was eighteen, I spoke fluent French. I knew how to work in a kitchen so I could hustle with the best of them. I knew how to make, you know, vinaigrette and mayonnaise from scratch. I had just learned how to make beurre blanc. I could pronounce the names of all the vegetables. I could get things out of the refrigerator. I had some butchering skills. I had phenomenal fish filleting skills because I paid rent for two summers in France filleting fish in the basement of the house where I lived. But that I could speak French and and make 20 dishes, hire this kid, he's great. Yeah, that was it. And that, 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 was would, that would not be enough today. Yeah. And, and I was just really, really lucky to start when I did. And I, I learned along with everybody. I just learned as I went. I'm a far better chef than I am 40 years now on than I was when I was 21. But when I was 21, I was serving the kind of the best food in L.A. And mm-hmm. when I look back at that, it's like, wow. Yeah. So can we talk? Can we just talk briefly? In LA, you're you're one of these. You're one of the few Americans. You're probably, really probably the only one at the time who was as known as you were. Um, you also were sort of known as the term that came up a lot, including in the press, was enfant terrible, right? You were known as a bit of a hothead. Uh, I I got the name enfant terrible. Um, I earned it. Uh, <laughs> I'm only bringing this up because you've been very open with it with me oh, on the record before. Oh, it, first of all... But I think it is interesting because you exhibited made, some of the behavior that chefs became notorious for at the time. I, I made the LA Times when I was 21 years old. Uh, people called me the, you know, the Mozart of the stockpots. Um, I made LA Magazine, California Magazine. I made the New York Times when I was 21 years old. And, you know... Getting a lot of media attention when you're really young uh, is not always really healthy. And getting a lot of media attention before I was savvy about how the media works meant that when someone would interview me, I would just tell them what I thought. So I would tell them, for example, that you know restaurant owners were notoriously ripping off their staff, that restaurant owners were notoriously serving frozen fish but calling it fresh. And that did not sit well with the established restaurant community. Who is this kid? You know, who, where did he come from? Who the fuck is he? And why is he saying, in, in retrospect, I was right. I was telling the truth, but I hadn't yet learned, you know, sometimes it's better to say something off the record as background so a journalist can understand what's going on, but maybe not be quoted. Um, sometimes there's some value to 
not saying something if you can't say something nice. It took me a while to learn that. It took me a long time to lose that reputation. But at the end of the day, there wasn't anything that I said that wasn't true. It was what I thought. And uh, most of the time, I was actually right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think anyone disputes most of that stuff. Um, but it is interesting what you say, because this was a time, I mean, you, you were more than a decade pre-internet. Um, this was a time when, uh, you know, there was the term going viral. That didn't exist. Um, so there wasn't... I mean, How fortunate. No, but I mean, these days, even children grow up because of, you know, social media and whatnot. You, you develop very young a sense of what you say and do when there are recording devices present, which is most of the time, right? There was nothing like that back then. You're, you're one minute, you're in a kitchen in complete privacy. Someone comes in with a recorder. You sit at a table. There's No one's tweeting things out. No one's Instagramming things out. Nobody's going on Facebook. I could see how one back then especially would have no idea. Uh, I it, it took me a few years to learn that... Uh you have to be careful what you say to the press. Yeah. Uh, not that you're worried about saying something that's not true. It's just you have to be careful that what you say may be misinterpreted by people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's a lesson well learned. So I personally love Los Angeles very much. Um, you did really well there. You were at a couple of restaurants. You were... Th- as I've talked about before, the opening chef at Michael's, you move on, uh, you open La Toque, but you became disenchanted with the Los Angeles, at least of the time. Um, I don't know that that would happen to you today with what's going on there, but what was it that kind of pushed you personally to want to migrate somewhere else? Well, the thing about Los Angeles in the 80s and the 90s and certainly into the early 2000s was that it became a city that was very much more focused on social status than culinary status. The best restaurants in New York were the restaurants that were serving the best food, period. And they were full of famous people. Uh, The most famous restaurants in Los Angeles were the ones that were full of stars. Right. And it was who who you got your picture taken with, it was what table you got. Uh, It was all about celebrity. And these status, celebrity and status. And these people didn't give a fuck about food. They just wanted to be famous. And so when you've got this really strong Hollywood culture where, you know, they have to be beautiful. They have to be famous. You know, they all want no salt. They all want no fat. They all want no sugar. You know, I I would have customers come in and ask me in January if I could make fettuccine cake. And I'd say, which well, is what for people who don't it's know? It's a fettuccine with with fresh tomatoes and a few other things. But the key is, why would you ever make that in January or February when you don't have fresh tomatoes? And I tell them, yeah, I can. Well, well, why won't you? Well, because one, it's not an Italian restaurant, and two, it's January, and they're not the right tomatoes. And 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 people get all upset. It's like, well, but that's what I want. Then go to an Italian restaurant. That's not what I have on my menu. It's not what I do. I can make it, but I'm not going to. So you, um, it, it is funny, you know, the, there are these scenes in movies, right? Like the one that comes to mind for me is the movie Get Shorty, where Danny DeVito 
you know, every time he goes into a restaurant sort of customizes his meal, right? And and there's a lot of stuff in the player about, you know, I, I want my water in a wine glass. And oh, the, that, that but, is so L.A. But, but those, for people who, and I... Anyone from L.A. who's listening, you know I love L.A. It's probably my favorite city. I, I think about spending a part of my time there when my children move to college. But um, but at that time, in that place, those scenes, those are not really parody. That was basically um, true to life. Those were things that happened almost verbatim. Uh, those were things that happened literally Every day. Yeah. But I mean, the you know, examples in those movies, those are not exaggerations. Oh, th- no, no. Those were written by screenwriters who saw them for real yeah. and knew that they were, in fact, the truth. Yeah. And, and I just got really tired of that. Uh, and I was drawn to Napa because uh, it was somewhere I wanted to live. Uh, it was somewhere that had a really, the Bay Area had a really great, and I found really honest um, culinary scene, mm-hmm. really great products. People would try anything, eat anything. Uh, and I was really drawn to that, and and that's why I that's why I moved to Napa. It's certainly the smartest thing I've ever done. But let me talk about what does make Los Angeles so great. I think in terms of ethnic diversity, I don't know that there's a city on the planet that can even touch Los Angeles. Uh, it has undoubtedly some of the best Chinese food outside of China. It has undoubtedly Undoubtedly, some of the finest Japanese food outside of Japan. Uh, and the ethnic diversity, the, the sheer range of ethnic foods that are available in L.A. at a very high level of mastery, just no city anywhere competes with it. And that riotous array of all of this crazy stuff that's available in L.A. is really magical. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. So um, you move up to Napa. Uh, you've been there for a while. 20 years. You, uh, I met you for the first time in, we had done, I think, a phone interview once, but I came to interview you, I think it was in 2014. We met in the morning uh, in the dining room of La Toque, which doesn't, at least at the time, it didn't do lunch. Uh, so we had, we had the play, nobody was there. It was you and me. Uh, you seemed to me then, and in the few times I've seen you since that, like a, a very... Um, and it, you, you, it may be stronger than this, but I'm just going to use the, the, the word I feel very safe with about my impression. You seemed like a very contented person. I love what I do. But uh, I, you also seem to love where you do it, how you're doing it. You, you seem like you really found the sweet spot for yourself. You know, I, I, I love what I do, and I get to do what I do on my own terms. Meaning what? Uh, I love this business. I love cooking. I love restaurants. I I love wine. I love where I live, and you know I'm my own boss. I I get to do what I want to do on my own terms every day, and that's really hard to beat. That's great. But when you say on your own terms, what makes it on your own terms? It's, You're cooking the food you want to cook. It's where I want to. It's where I want to cook. It's what I want to cook. It's who I want to cook for. Mm-hmm. It's when I want to cook. It's ten minutes from home. It's a beautiful place. Um, I I I love my job. Yeah. What uh, do you still do? I haven't been there in several years. You, if I'm remembering right, I think the menu was was it in four quadrants. So and you could sort of decide the number of courses you wanted and kind of. We have a set vegetable tasting menu that we do every night. Okay. We have a nine course chef's table tasting menu that we do every night. Chef's table meaning chef's in the table kitchen. Menu. Well, but that menu is available everywhere. Oh, I see. Okay. 
our core menu is divided into four groups of dishes, yeah. three or four each. And that's where people can put together their own tasting menu. It's kind of a unique format. So you can do a two course plus dessert. You could do three, four. You can do three or four plus dessert. Okay. And you can do them really in any order you want. They're, they're, they're ordered, they're organized, um, in order pretty much by the wine pairings that they go with because mm. everything on our menu has wine paired with it because Latoque, since I've moved to Napa, I have focused on making it really a wine-driven restaurant because I can't think about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to cook without thinking about what are we going to go pull it out of, the, out of the cellar to drink with it. So the first grouping is lighter, brighter whites. Mm. The second grouping is usually richer whites though there are exceptions to this. The third grouping would be thin-skinned and medium-bodied reds, and then the fourth grouping, uh, which tends to be protein-based meat courses, uh, tends to be thicker-skinned uh, reds with some age on them. Mm. Has it always been that way in terms of this, the yep. organization? So even yep. when I first came there, yep. which, gosh, so, that was like 10 years ago now. It makes a lot of sense for people to order something from the first group, the second group, the third group, and the fourth group. Yeah. But we have people order all three from the fourth group sometimes. Mm. It, it doesn't really bother me. It's just sure. there's a certain order to it that makes sense. Yeah. But we want you, hey, if that's how you want to do it, yeah. thank you for coming. Yeah. So uh, what, what's, what are some of the unique, I mean, you just mentioned the wine uh how wine factors into the organizing of the menu. That's probably one answer. But you're, you're in, I mean, you were in American wine country there. How does that affect how you do what you do? What are some things maybe that for someone who hasn't lived or, or operated a restaurant uh, in that area, how, is that, uh, how does that influence your decision making? Well, what's good about it is the sheer number of people who visit there that are focused on what we do. There's a large number of well-to-do visitors that are there to celebrate life, to celebrate their success, to spoil themselves with some great wine and food and stay in a beautiful hotel and visit some wineries and eat in some great restaurants. So we have, we have a visitor market that is really focused on what we do well, and we have lots of places for them to do it. So we have this core group of visitors that's really fantastic. The thing we have to be careful of is not to get sucked into this. A lot of places end up getting sucked into this. Well, if it's not from here, it's not any good. And I long ago decided that, you know, we don't care where the wine comes from as long as it's good. Uh, Napa Valley is home to some wines that belong on the world's best tables, there's no doubt. But should we be drinking Gruner Veltliner and Riesling from Napa Valley? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. uh, should we be drinking Pinot Noir from Burgundy? Uh, absolutely. Should we be drinking Barolo when it's truffle season? Absolutely. And when we're eating steak, how we're going to drink some awesome Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. You, uh, am I correct about this, Ken? You seem to me, unless I'm mistaken, and if it's something you can't talk about, that's fine, but... You're you're not really you you're not looking to expand. It seems to me you're you're shaking your head no as I ask. So here's my question: At a time when a lot of people are, um, including people of your generation, you know, still looking to consultancies or you know, build continuing to build their empires, um, what for you beyond just the love of the game, right? What keeps you? How do you keep yourself 
engaged? How do you set goals for yourself? How do you set challenges for yourself in a, you know, 20 years on in one place? Well, the challenge in this business is, is to keep learning and to keep growing. And you just can't stand still. So I travel quite a bit. Uh, we don't have any rules on the menu. The menu evolves constantly. And in fact, you know, if, if you look back five years, I look at dishes we were doing, it's like, wow, we did that then? Oh, I'd never do that now. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's about relentlessly, it's such an exciting business. And it's such a great time to be a cook in America. And in, in fact, a cook anywhere in the world. The world is just eating better than ever before. And there's a, there's a mixing of Spanish and Italian and Asian. Uh, you know, go to England. London has fantastic restaurants. When I started cooking, no one would ever go to London to eat. Or England. It was or, a punchline. British England, food was a punchline. Oh, London is a fantastic yeah. food town. Yeah. Tokyo, Hong Kong, fantastic food town. So the whole world has this really great energy around great eating. There's never been a better time to be cooking. But it also means that you're either learning and staying current and trying new things and seeing what everybody else is doing and, and uh, uh, learning from all of them and incorporating all of these things that you see into who you are. Mm -hmm. And that to me is really the most exciting thing. To be able to have a restaurant you know, in my 60s that is hopefully as relevant as my restaurant when I was in my 20s is, is quite an accomplishment. It's no and, small and, thing. And, and it's really fun. Yeah, all right. Well, it's great to see you. Thank you for doing this. This is semi spur of the moment, um, but it's great to have you on. It was great to be on stage with you Good today. Good to be here. Thanks. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, a leading specialty food importer and distributor servicing the New York tri state area and beyond from coast to coast. I'm Jordan Werner Berry, the host of Modernist Breadcrumbs here on HRN. When it comes to freshly baked artisan bread, it's key to pair it with butter that's made with the same amount of care and attention. And you don't have to go all the way to France to find truly amazing butter. Bourmont 83% is an American butter made using traditional French methods. It's produced by a dairy cooperative in New England. And as a Vermont native, I love that this delicious butter is made locally by family farms. Bourmont 83% is great for cooking, baking, and serving on your table with fresh breads and artisan cheeses. It's proudly distributed by Paris Gourmet to restaurants and grocery stores around the tri-state area. Learn more about Paris Gourmet and all of their gourmet savory foods and pastry ingredients at parisgourmet.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. We are back from our break. I, I've grouped these last two interviews because these two chefs, Claudette Zepeda Wilkins and Francisco Magoya, both of Mexican descent. Claudette's based in San Diego. She has a restaurant called El Jardin, The Garden. Francisco is part of the Modernist Cuisine Organization, but they did a dinner the day after the Chef's Roll event at Claudette's restaurant. So I'm making them the last two interviews. 
Claudette was someone I never met before. Years ago, she worked for my buddy Gavin Kazin. Hmm. Yeah, when he was in his San Diego days. She's been on Top Chef. Some people may know her from the show. I didn't watch the season she was on. Apparently, she sort of got, found herself in the role of like the villain. Uh, it happens. They do that on reality yeah. TV. She's the least villainous person I've ever met. Anyway, we had a great talk about cultural identity, about finding your voice you know, on the plate, about getting through hard times, as she did. She, she was not someone of privilege. She was someone who really wanted a life in the professional kitchen and made a lot of, sac- lot of sacrifices and did a lot of hard work and worked multiple jobs until she got to this place that she occupies now, which is wonderful. Um, she's very open. We had a great conversation. I'm not going to say anything else about it because this is a long show. I'm just going to turn it over to my interview with Claudette Zapeda Wilkins of El Jardin Restaurant. I hope you enjoy it. San Francisco forever, a lot of play. LA's having its big moment right now. San Diego. It does a version of the flyover city. <laughs> the flyover of California. Yeah, exactly. yeah or the drive by, I yeah. guess. I have to be honest, the only times I've been to San Diego in the past is there's a like a spa resort I've been to in Baja, mm-hmm. Rancho La Puerta. Yeah. And one of my mentors is a chef there. Oh Denise Roa. Has she been there for a couple of years? Yeah. She's like, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't been there in twenty years. Wow. And I went there two summers ago, and the food was the best I'd ever had. But San Diego, you know, I've only come through here on my way there, if I'm honest. You're only a couple hours drive from L.A. if you do it at a smart time of day. Yeah. Um, what, what for you, what's, what's it like cooking here? What's, 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 uh, what do people not understand about this city? I mean, I've only ever cooked in San Diego. I had children very young, so I've kind of been landlocked to San Diego, but I don't find that to be a disadvantage. Um, We're a border town. So a lot of our food here is kind of just a mashup of all the immigrants that have been in this region geographically. Um, And it's beautiful. I mean, Baja was just recognized as an actual region. And I uh, was born in San Diego and raised in between Tijuana and Guadalajara. My parents are, you know, I'm first generation. So my parents are from Jalisco and Tijuana. Yeah. And it just makes my life have all these beautiful characters that have kind of come in and out throughout my life. And the flavors are bold. The flavors are acid, spice, salt. Um, and you know, no holding back. And I think that that's a beautiful way that you can eat everything. You can surf, snowboard and hike all the same day in San Diego, (laughs) you know, and that's what people come here for R and R to unplug a staycation. Yeah. But we are more than that. We're a solid, you know, food scene now. I feel like it feels like it's on the, like things are really elevating quickly here. Yeah. I feel it. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> so can I just ask, you You were born in this area. Mm-hmm. You just uh, rattled off a couple of cities in Mexico with mm-hmm. a, an accent that is spectacular. I, I grew up with a Cuban stepmother. Uh-huh. Um, tell me how you, when you were growing up, English did you grow up? second language. You grew up bilingual I, and English was, uh, Spanish was first. Yeah, Spanish was first. I learned English watching KPBS, watching Jacques and Julia. I'm surprised I don't have a really weird accent because of the TV we watched as kids. Okay. But yeah, Sesame Street, we were learning English the same time my parents were. Or my dad came to the States when he was um, right out of university to LA in the uh-huh. 50s, 60s. Yeah. Uh, but my mom learned English with us. So oh, um, wow. I speak Spanish fluently because I was not allowed to speak English in my home. Well, why was that? Was it the my class- grandmother? Yeah. Or was it the classic heritage, like wanting to hold on to that sort of thing? 
Yeah, I mean, so there's a different, there's two different sides to uh, first gen, second gen. It's either your family says ignore the past. We yeah. are we are American. You, yeah. You know, and then you don't learn any Spanish. And I have a lot of friends that are that. Um, and on the opposite, my dad was inc is incredibly proud to be Mexican. So in our household, we were not Mexican American. We were just Mexican. Uh, we just happened to be born here, but um, yeah. we were. I was sent to Mexico every break we had. I lived in Guadalajara with my aunt yeah. half of my life until my teenage years. You yeah. know? So uh, Mexico was very prevalent in my life yeah. and uh, played a huge role into the person I became. Did, was that was there ever a point becoming. in your life becoming? That's yeah. better. Right. Yeah. We all are, right? We're still a work in progress. If you, get, if you have your head screwed on, right. Yeah. Um, but uh, was that ever... I don't know what is the word confusing was it was it ever to be here spend some part of the year south of the border like was it was that tough it was it, like psychologically it was i mean i didn't experience racism until we moved to the states uh you know and i came we moved from tijuana to imperial beach which is a the you know most southernest beach in california yeah right before the border um, and it was during the skinhead movement and yeah. that was a really big thing and there was skinheads in my middle school and you know people calling us derogatory terms when I was a child yeah um, so it was this culture shock of like oh shit we're not like at that point it was still a territorial thing of like you're brown I'm not you're yes. wrong I'm not yeah um, and I it was a culture shock to say the least yeah um, but I think it you know I, I wear Doc Martens every day and it's kind of like a fuck you to every single person that you know that right. punk movement i appreciate it but it got skewed into this awful thing from yeah. you know from what it was in the uk to what we made it yeah it became a very ugly thing so it was very confusing as a child to say oh we are different yeah and that was like i what i eat at home isn't what my friends eat at home yeah can you yeah. talk to me about that a little what kind of how, what did you grow up eating I grew up eating, we were poor. We, my dad was an attorney, a self-employed attorney, which yeah. is I mean, like a starving artist. Yes. You know, he took odd jobs, got paid cash. Sometimes he would get paid a restaurant and my parents, he'd run that to the ground because he wasn't a great businessman. And right. What that meant was at home we had, one day we would have rice and beans. We'd have rice and beans for a week. We have fideo, which is, you know, yeah. angel hair with tomatoes, like a soup. Um, and then another day my dad would come home and he'd got paid and he would want, you know, squid and crab. And my mom would have to, he, again, he immigrated to LA when it was, you know, how cuisine was this huge thing. So he had a good palate. We just didn't have the money for it. Uh -huh. So we would have these influx of, um, money come in and at our house. So we'd have escargot. I had escargot when I was five living in TJ. My mom had never cooked before she met my father. And she learned to cook uh, through magazines and Julia Child's cookbooks and the shows. And so, when you say escargot, you're talking about the f classic French yeah. pepperoni with the garlic butter. Yeah, exactly. And the, yeah. My dad would find, you know, and it was canned. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, obviously, not fresh. Yeah. But we were might have been safer in those days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we were exposed to such diversity when I was a child. I right. didn't think it was different. But, you know, when it was a school lunch thing, we would go to to school with a burrito, a machaca burrito, a really small machaca burrito and, you know, rice and beans or sometimes potato soup. And so, I mean, I, again, all these layers help me become who I am. And sure. as, as a mom, I make, my, make sure my kids have these same flavors so then they can kind of reflect in sure. their adulthood of yeah. the same roots that I had. When you were eating that food at school, the, you said people, did people find that... It was Unusual? our elementary school in Imperial Beach was also segregated by they called it tracks. 
Uh-huh. So there was A, B, C, and D yeah. tracks. Yeah. We were in B because we were bilingual. Okay. Um, so in my classroom, we only spoke Spanish. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so we also, uh, there was a new playground and an old playground, and track B could only play in the, in the old playground. Yeah. Um, so it was just, I guess it's the, the place we were living in at the time, but all my friends were Mexican. Uh, you know, it wasn't until middle school and high school that I started having American friends and yeah. really seeing like, oh, we are different. You know, but we, <laughs> the, the first time I saw meatloaf for a casserole, I was like, what is that? Yeah. Tuna casserole. It was just a revelation to me. And yeah. they're like, it's awful. And I'm like, no, it's great. It's not rice and beans. Yeah. That's <laughs> but, funny. Yeah. You responded to all that stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah I, yeah. I mean, I loved it. I loved something different. Yeah. So when did you start thinking about going this route that you've gone? Was it always what you wanted to do? No. Um, well, as a child, uh, you know, I was really good at school. I'm a really good student. And I'm always, uh, I'm always reading. I love to read, love to learn. Yeah. I think feel like I'm an eternal student of life. And yeah. Learning and reading for me is just kind of an escape. You know, yep. it's like a, it's a makeup world. If you read fiction, it's just this beautiful scenario you can play in your head. Um, and as a child, I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. Um, I was really good at arguing and I saw my father would come home with, you know, these briefs that he would, my mom would type up for him. She was his secretary. So my parents would promise me something or say I could do something and I would write a legal brief and make them sign it. So, um, but again, I always cooked because I lived in a very old school house. My dad yeah. was born in 1937. So the rule, the roles were very black and white. I was the only girl. Okay. Uh, my brothers took out the trash. I cleaned and helped my mom cook. Okay. It was very, uh, traditional, traditional. Yeah. So for me, cooking wasn't um, necessarily a job. It was more of like, well, this is what we do because we're women. Yeah. And we're supposed to keep the house. Right. Um, and it was until I got much older, you know, in, well, in high school, that I started feeding my brothers and his friends. And I remember these feelings of watching people cook and like what I made. Yeah. And it fed my soul in a way that nothing yeah. had really, I mean... I mean, you can go to school, and but I hated classes that were talking about legal jargon and political science. It just put me to sleep. Yeah. So I'd go home and cook. Yeah. And, uh, so when did what, what was the break point? When did you decide to shift gears? Well, Food Network was a thing. It yeah. was becoming a thing. Yeah. And I started seeing, I didn't know chefs were a thing. I didn't know that was a career. Right. Uh, I had sure. never been exposed to chefs. I'd only yeah. had been exposed to the cooks at my aunt's restaurant that were women that, you yeah. know, cocinadas tradicionales, we call them. And uh, I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And I started looking up culinary schools, and my son was born. And it was one of those moments where how do you tell someone to chase their dreams? As How do you basically give this little human inspiration to follow their dreams? So I wrote an essay about Julia Child teaching me how to speak English. And, uh, yeah, I got into culinary school and uh, started that path. Okay. So it took me a bit, but yeah. uh, I dropped out. I couldn't afford culinary school, but yeah. I just found good mentors. Okay. And that has been, you know, my saving grace is people that kind of keep my, push my head when I turn sideways, they go, nope, keep going forward. Okay. Is this right? Did you work for Gavin Kazin? Yeah, I was his pastry chef when he was here in San Diego. Okay. And to this day, he's one of my greatest friends okay. and mentors. And okay. We have some history. I don't know. You may know that. But I wrote, I, yeah. I wrote the book about the book, Whose Door? And he was like my guardian angel. Uh, he was the one who made sure I got where I needed to get to do what I needed to do. Yeah, he was San Diego's wonder kid. <laughs> yeah, right. He was really young. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about tell me about how you've kind of... Uh, well, how do you describe what you do? How do you describe your food? My food. If you even... Uh, some, it's hard. I'll qualify by saying some chefs I know don't like to describe it. They just say, this is my food. Right. 
No, I mean, I think my food has a voice. My food is, um, I, I like to say that it is um, the past, present, and future. Hmm. You know, I like to say it's where I've been, where I'm going, and where I plan, when I, where I see myself going. Yeah. And it's always lend itself to being fluid. You know, I'm not a chef that thinks I know it all. I'm, a, again, a student. I'm always looking for inspiration, and my food is just paying tribute and homage to the women that don't have a voice in Mexico, the uh -huh. moms, the grandmas, yep. that will have, can make tears fall out of your face with the food they cook. You know, I listen to I listen to certain songs and I eat certain dishes and it it literally feels like a knot is in my throat because it reminds me of a, you know a woman, a grandma, my grandmother. Certain songs I like literally bring me to my knees because it's it's eating is a sensory experience. It's a story, and when you eat it, my food. I hope you remember it resonates with you regardless of where you come from. Yeah, that's my favorite thing is being able to have having someone that isn't Mexican say, "Oh my God, this reminded me of the food I ate when I was growing up." Yeah, that's it. That's that magic that as chefs we have the ability to create. Now you just use the word magic. There is something spiritual about what you just described. Yeah. There is this. Um, it's a weird thing that the Boku's that well, I just brought up the Boku's door because you know uh, I, I, there used to be a debate that would go on right, and the debate was like I used to say to Gavin, why don't they just have like Thomas Keller design the what the person's going to cook in this competition and then have the competitor cook it? Mm -hmm. And he said because it won't taste the same if it's not their own food. If they haven't developed it themselves, right? Or one recipe can be made by 10 people. I can tell you how to make exactly what I make at the restaurant, but you won't make it taste like I do. Yeah. It's just, again, yeah. If so, the, the movie, like Water for Chocolate, Yeah. I always say that that's, that's kind of what I do. So how do you, you're talking about a very personal thing. You're talking about, I assume I'm going to make a leap and say when you cook, you're tasting a lot. Yeah. You're, you, the last moments of seasoning are probably super important. Yeah. Um, Till you get that probably something that triggers for you a you know a memory yeah. even if it's not a specific one or a feeling or a right. time um how do you convey to your cooks what you're looking for because it seems to me when something is as personal as what you do that's when it's and that's when it becomes the hardest to have other people execute to what you have in your head does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing is getting cooks that don't have any experience in Mexican food or don't have any experience at all. I love people that just want to learn and that are green and just have the passion for cooking. You know, I have a cook that's been with me since we opened. And to this day, he has me check his line to make sure that the flavors are right. Um, and that's beautiful. That's, you know. He has you do it, you yeah. said. And he says, chef, am I right? And then, you know, I always say, yeah, it's delicious, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I just tell them all the time, taste, 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 taste in the beginning. Set a timer at 7 o'clock because things reduce. If it's a braise, taste it again because you cannot expect the first plate to come out like the last plate if it's a braise because it reduces. And yeah. all of a sudden you have, and it's happened to us. And I said, you know, you're only as good as the last dish. Yeah. People are only going to remember that last thing they tasted. They don't give a shit if they had, came 10 other times and it was great. Yeah. That last memory is what matters. Yeah. So it's always, always be, being willing to be like, I don't know if this tastes right. Check. Yeah. You know, and I just teach, instill that in them. And sometimes it works. And sometimes, you know, I have to kind of smack them. Be like, you have to ask. <laughs> um, because I do. Sometimes, you know, yeah. my palate's off. If I'm feeling sick, I have my sushi. I was like, oh, it tastes yeah. I don't know. And that's just being willing to be fluid and being willing to accept criticism, which I think is... Yeah. Well, I think that's such a great point, what you just said. And not just in kitchens, but when you said you have to ask, you know, I think as much as a 
chef, manager, boss, whatever, manages the, the people who are, you know, under them on the pecking order, mm-hmm. I think as an employee, or as a, you have to also sometimes manage your boss, right? Because yeah. the more, and, and the more accomplished you become as a, as a cook, and the more leeway you have, and the more trust the chef has in you, mm-hmm. the more it's on you when there does come a moment where you're unsure to raise your hand because you've de- if you've demonstrated a certain amount of self-sufficiency, yeah. right? I mean, I think the, what all chefs want is somebody to make their lives easier. I think that's what they want, in, and that's one of the things yeah. they want in, in, in cooks, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. whether or not they would phrase it that way, yeah. I think that's what it amounts to. Right. So if you show that aptitude, you're going to get a lot of rope, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I use the same methodology, methodology as, a, as a mom. It's like, don't make me be your mom. Make me be, you know, we're allies until until you have, to, I have to be your mom. Yeah. And I tell my cooks the same. It's like, I'm your, I'm a cook, and I am right next to you. Don't make me be your boss. Yeah, it's uncomfortable for all of us. Right. You know, but it's, yeah, it's an alliance that we all have, you know, for the greater, the greater good of the restaurant. Yeah, it's not about me. It's so, about the food we put out. So what you just mentioned about um, taking in people with no cooking experience mm-hmm. that requires an awful lot of time and commitment. Mm-hmm. You're happy to put that in? I am. Uh, I, ha- I I don't know if it's women's intuition, but I do have a good knack of, fi- of um, finding the people that really give a damn. Yeah. And the people that don't are the ones... I mean, I had a... You know, I, when we opened, it was um, very anticipated, so we had a lot of people wanting to work there, but for the wrong reasons. And they themselves worked themselves out of a job. You know, I had a cook pull me aside and says, are we going to make enchiladas forever? And I started, I looked at him and I said, what did you eat growing up? Enchiladas. Okay, and what, what was the only thing you could afford at that time? You know, it's like, so it, he, he missed the mark of what we're trying to do. Yeah. It wasn't about making enchiladas every day. I mean, it changes, the many changes very often. It was really just paying tribute to what we know and what was a comfort food for us. Yeah. And then showing it to people um, that San Diego's never seen. We have a lot of Mexican food, but not very good Mexican food. Yeah. So our goal was always show what we eat, what right. Mexicans eat at home. Yes. You know, and it's different. Yeah. Um, okay. I would probably not have asked this question, but we were just on a panel together and you made reference to yourself and you said you look like a comic book. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and ask this question <laughs> uh, because you told me you were interested in being a lawyer. Yeah. I do not associate the look that you have. Well, that's why I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> with lawyers, but did you yeah. have? Did you always? Were you always sort? Did you always? Um, uh, you know, did you always kind of express yourself in the way you know with with what you wear with tattoos with you currently have purple hair, yeah, uh, lipstick to match, uh, very cool glasses, <laughs> like. But the, you're very put together in a, in a very. Um, expressive way right was that always the case or was that something that came after you decided to go on a different track no I mean in seventh grade I was buying my clothes my mom thought I was the weirdest kid and I was you know I was one of the weird kids I was the loner because I wore green bell bottoms and you know I had a purple cast my seventh grade year I had bangs that were curly I was an awkward kid um, I listened to music that not really, you know, my friends didn't listen to because I had grown up with, you know, a bunch of Mexican kids. The first time I listened to punk music, I was like, oh, shit, this is, I'm home, you know. And I was I ha- just going to ask if it was punk that you listened yeah, to. I yeah, I listened to punk music yeah. and, you know, Irish, Celtic punk. I, I yeah. have this, my, <laughs> my playlist is a little schizophrenic, but 
Um, at the same time, I listened to Billy Joel. I listened to Elton John. And I listened to all these people that were very confident in who they were. And I mm. think that the overlying theme is I'm, I've always just been me. And yeah. to some people, you know, one of my great friends in high school used to tell me, oh, that's unique. But that was her way of saying that she didn't like what I was wearing. Mm. And that still kind of like vibrates in my ears. And it's like, I'm all, I've always been this way. I've always been kind of beating to my own drum and marching to my own drum. And yeah, I have no problem being, you know, uncomfortable to watch for some people. And as a kid, were you okay with that? Like yeah. when you say you were a little bit of, you know, a loner. Yeah, my and... dad hated that, that I wasn't, uh, I was non-conforming. Right. But you were fine with it. Yeah. It didn't bother you. You didn't care if that. No, because my mom always kind of indulged that in me. Yeah. She would buy me the weird shit. Yeah. You know, she was, she was right. okay with me being the weird kid. It's always the moms. It's always the moms. The moms will, right? whatever you're doing, they're all, you, I mean, I'm overstating it. That's not always true. <laughs> but it's more often true that if a, a kid is a certain way, whatever it is, and w if one parent, is it more accepting of it? It's always the mom. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in sixth grade camp, I wasn't allowed to shave my legs and I was in a a house basically with a bunch of you know american girls with blonde yeah. hair blue eyes yeah. that all shaved their legs and here this mexican kid was you know with hair holding up her socks that was you know so i i knew yeah. i was just different from the onset yeah. and i was okay with it yeah when you look back you know you just you know the way you like to dress as a kid like the discovering punk music do you are you? Do you think it was like? Do you feel like it was inevitable that you like when you said you listened to punk music and you knew you were home? Did you feel the same way when you finally found your way to a kitchen? Yeah, there was. I worked. I you know as a single mom, you kind of have to do anything to keep food on your table. Yeah. I've worked as a bookkeeper for a nonprofit for three years while I was a line cook at night. I've worked um, check cashing checks at a check cashing place. I worked at IKEA, you know, at the returns department. Anything to get food on my table yeah. while my craft was trying to be developed you yeah. know and i think that makes me a well-rounded person not just cook and i can really work with any type of personality because of this history yeah um but i think that it it was inevitable because as soon as i stepped foot in a kitchen i realized that it was a lot of broken children we're a lot of broken yeah. we are people that come from all walks of life that really can only do this one thing good and we share in our, you know, uh, in our kind of sketchy childhoods and you're yeah. just kind of like, yeah, misfits. Yeah. I love my misfits. I love listening to the misfits. I love listening to Black Flag. It's like all these things have a commonality with the kitchen and the kitchens. It doesn't matter where you come from. It, that's home. It's funny because, you know, that word misfits, it, to me, it's almost like poetic, like, right? But... It's so weird for someone who writes, because that word's actually in the subtitle of my book that I wrote about chefs. But I just last night, I heard that word somewhere. I forget where it was. And I thought, you know, when you th break it down, because it does just sound like outcasts or whatever, right. but it's misfit. It's people who don't fit in. We're the right? square pegs. The square pegs. Yeah. It's really, it, it, and that's very much the feeling that a lot of cooks have conveyed to me of like not fitting in elsewhere, you know, not thinking they could be in an office, you know, not uh, dressing, not just in a in the kind of um, uh, fashion forward way that you do or artistic yeah. way that you do, but also just people who don't want to put on like a button down shirt and, you know, yeah. who want to, who want to live in a t-shirt basically, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, 
kitchens you, that works it all it all it all works for people can i just as you were talking about working those two you know years working two jobs yeah how much sweeter does that make where you are right now do you still do you ever think about those days i, I do i i, I would mean, think that would make that would be pretty sweet my kid remembers when we had to play hide and seek because our lights got shut off you know it's it's this weird thing that happens when you look back and I guess because I was raised as a perfectionist, I was raised as you have to be perfect, you know, a very Mexican household, you know, yeah. good grades, good grades, good grades. I think now, I don't really think that this is where I'm, this is it. Yeah. So I, in, in my head, I'm going, well, no, because the, the light just keeps going further back. You know, it's yeah. where I'm going isn't even near where I'm at right now. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I do kind of sit back and say, wow, like I once prayed for all these things and I once was... I once hoped that I could give my children everything they wanted and yeah. we're not exactly there, but I don't have to say no as much, Yeah, which is a really sweet part. Well, it's like your menu, right? You said it's the past, present and future. Yeah. That's your past, present yeah. and future, Yeah, right? Yeah. The past was tough. Yeah. Present's pretty good and yeah. you want the future to be even better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for taking a few minutes. Yeah, thanks for wanting to talk. Really good to meet you. Likewise. All right, Caitlin. My last interview is with Francisco... Magoya, I said this earlier in the show. I think we had a bromance. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I do. I, it, I know you. If he really... was in New York, we would have. You know, like my buddy Evan Song. You know how Evan and I got to be pals. And mm -hmm. it, it, here's why I say it. Here's why I've said it repeatedly. I think the older you get, the more. Excuse me. The less common it is to make new friends. To make new friends. I totally agree. It just is. Also, it, you don't have a lot of time, so that's part of it. Yeah, and I, I sometimes think about, you know, uh, Confucius had a line, like, you will know your friends better in the first, whatever, three minutes than you will an acquaintance in a lifetime or something like that. I believe Francisco and I will have time together in the future. Mm. Okay. I do. I think we had a real connection. We liked each other. Uh, we, I think we had an instant respect for each other. Um, and I hope he's someone I'll get to spend some time with getting to know. That's, I love I really do really really love it when that happens because yes. it does not happen very often but you know what I mean do you think it's weird I'm saying it on the air do you think Francisco's think listening to this going Ey. maybe I don't want to be maybe I better block that guy's number no I think it's rare <laughs> I, I think it's but you know what I mean it's rare to yeah. connect like that it's with rare someone to connect and also you know frankly the fact that you're saying it and you're a dude like that's pretty great what okay well, I just don't think that, like, guys will say, like, it's harder to make friends when you get older. It's true. I just think it's It's right. so true, and I've felt this way since I was in my 30s. I remember saying to someone I got to be really good friends with in my 30s, yeah. you know, having dinner and saying, like, hey, dude, I just want to tell you, like, this is rare. Yeah. You know? Yep. Anyway, that's my feeling. I'm not embarrassed to say it publicly. I don't think you should be. No. Okay. I'm not. I think it's just very open. This is how we are in 2019. Right. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Keeps you young. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Caitlin. With that, I think this is a great conversation. It's a little more food focused than a lot of these. You know, I tend to be much more about biography, but uh, because Francisco is so associated with the modernist movement, uh, we did kind of go deep on that. And I, I think even if that's not something that floats your boat, I think you will enjoy this conversation. It will make you understand what it's all about and maybe even make those of you who are non-believers a little more interested in seeing how it might apply to your 
life in the kitchen. I'll put that out there. Okay, here you go. My conversation with Francisco Magoya. I hope you enjoy it. Can, I'm, I'm always curious, um, especially somebody who has a area of specialization the mm-hmm. way that you do. How many, how many days a year, roughly, do you find yourself speaking in front of a, you know, an audience uh-huh. in the way that you just were? You seem very polished up there. You seem to have it down. Um, how, well, how often do you do that? Well, let me tell you where that comes from. I Please. used to teach. I used to teach, and so that there's, I used to teach, you know, teenagers in culinary school, and there's no way you're going to get their attention unless you're engaging, unless you're saying things that are going to be interesting and useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't mean you have to be a clown, but it means that you have to know your audience, you know? And so I think that, it for me, that was formative in, in, in public speaking. I probably mm-hmm. do these maybe once a month, once every two months. Oh, that's all. Um, yeah, well, but I also teach, like... Every now and then, I'll teach classes abroad. Yes. Um, yeah, I have one coming up in Indonesia in a couple of weeks. Wow. And so there's you have to be able to speak to people in a way that they're going to want to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you I'm find not, yourself adapting to different audiences? Yeah. You know, I mean, people who speak, they'll tell you that they have jokes that they use that, that work all the time. Right. And if you make that joke and it didn't work for a particular crowd, it's going to be a hard crowd. Yeah. Um, not because they don't have a sense of humor, but there's 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 something in the air that is just not right. Yes, and it can ruin your presentation because it's you're you already have that in your head. It's like it, it can't get away and out of your head that whatever you said that you thought was going to be a huge hit, it yes. just, just fell flat on the floor. Yeah. It's not that different from doing comedy stand-up. Yeah, well, I, I must, right. I'm a comedy fanatic. Okay. And I, the way you were just talking is exactly the way, if you hear a comic interviewed, it's very similar. Right, right. Except, yeah. you're, you're, so, Except you're not there to get laughs. No. And if I get a few, I'm, I consider right. myself fortunate. I'm there right. to, you know, for people when I'm done, I want them to have a takeaway. You know, mm-hmm. if it, even if they remember one thing yeah. or two, I'm, I'm grateful for that because yeah. holding people's attention for that long is asking a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. this was only 35 minutes, mm-hmm. but I've done talks that are an hour 10, an hour 15. Mm-hmm. And you, it's just keeping people like engaged. You, you see a few people in the audience who are starting to nod off. That's your cue. That you need to mix it up. Or well, although here or, they're sitting out in the sun, so. and that was that too. And after lunch, Which, right? Right. So, and maybe after some beers, exactly. you know, some beers. Yeah. It's like holy. That's so I wouldn't take time. I wouldn't take the nap personally here. Right. <laughs> no, but it's it, but you think you see it. You will yeah. always see it. Yeah. You know, like, but you know, in comedy clubs, you don't you don't see the audience. I think that's maybe a good thing. Cause it's in the mm-hmm. dark, but here you can see everybody's face yes. looking at you. You know, it's a different thing. Have you studied other for have you studied stand up comics to or other types of non culinary speak uh-huh. presenters to hone that part of what you do? I don't know that I've necessarily studied, but I've paid attention to it. You, yeah, for right. Sure. That's yeah, that's better said. Yeah. yeah, and and I think I, I pay attention to see like what TED talks are like if I'm going to go to the TED Talk podcasts, which are the best? Because there's so many. Where do I start? I'm going to right. start by the ones that are the best, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then those lead you to others and so forth. But why are they the best? Yes. And that has to do with really how people have reacted to them, mm-hmm. right? And so that's, that sort of kind of stays with you. Like, what is it? How were they saying their presentation? Yeah. When people stutter or they, they have too many clutches, I mean, sorry, crutches. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, mm, uh, uh, you know, that's okay to do that. But there's a point where it's too much. You're going to lose people, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so I, I learned a lot of that from 
I guess by osmosis, not necessarily yeah. like taking notes, but it's like why are these being why observant? Do, why do these talks work? And being ob- yeah. And why did I like it so much? Yeah. And so the, having being more mindful about when mm-hmm. I'm hearing somebody talk, what is it that that it, and how did they do it that I enjoyed it? Yeah. So, much? so can we just briefly talk about this term that's emblazoned on your yeah. shirt? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Modernist. Yes. For me, and maybe I'm wrong, I, I feel like there was a, a point in time, and I felt like we all thought we'd be using the term forever, mm-hmm. where molecular oh, was no. around. <laughs> what? Were you going to say molecular gastronomy? We, well, mo- I molecu- molecular is an adjective. Yeah, and but then I, gastronomy is molecular. Yes, no, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, <laughs> but then I feel like, um, and I think it largely had to do with this, with modernist, you know, with the books and the, mm-hmm. you know, or with modern, the, I feel like modernist became, A, a more, I think a more apt term mm-hmm. for what people were trying to describe mm-hmm. with that term molecular. Yes, um, I agree. Right? Because yeah. it was more broad mm-hmm. and also because, and this is what I'd love to get your opinion on, to me the big failing of the whole molecular thing, for mm-hmm. me, is I think there was this moment where there was this big mistake being made by some chefs yes. and by the public that um, that the the means was the end. Yeah. That 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 um, some kind of a, an effect, mm-hmm. that not necessarily flavor or texture, mm-hmm. achieved with. Um, through scientific means, through additives and yes. whatnot, was a was a style of food in and of itself, and I think, 100% and agree. I think people learned that was actually that was kind of a fool's errand, right? I just would love your response to that comment because you yes. know infinitely more about this than I do. No, and and, and probably have thought about it way more than I've, I have. I've thought about it a lot because when this whole like you know using additives and so forth came to become so popular. Uh, in the wrong hands, it could be disastrous. It mm-hmm. could be disgusting food. And so th- the information on how to do these things, how much of this additive to it, and that it was readily available. And people exchanged information, and books were published way before ours uh, with all of that information on how to make all these gels, these foams, uh, emulsions, etc. And so people started toying with it, and because a few people became known for it or that were really good at it, like the Adria brothers, mm-hmm. uh, the Roca brothers, although they don't do that so much anymore, uh, Andonia Duris from Mugaritz, they really started to push those boundaries, but they did it in a very cerebral, intelligent way. Uh, almost, I, I would say that in their hands, it could be a delicious experience. Mm-hmm. But when you're not mindful about what you're doing, you're just doing it for the whiz-bang and the smoke and mirrors, yeah. I mean, that's, that is going to give anything a bad reputation. Yeah. You know? um, and so I, I, that's why I take pause with that term, because it does have negative associations. I mean, it, it does... It, you know, it, a funny part, I'm going to like sidetrack on this, yeah. but the, it, it, it's funny to me how molecular gastronomy is... You ask any of these young guys out here, what they think of it they would be like oh that's old school already yeah yeah that's right it's already and that's how i realized that i'm getting old because I, I to me it's not like it was new and i don't think of it as a new thing anymore but to now have somebody already think about it as like this is old school but i think um, that speaks to how um how kind of uh, you know what a detour it was because i yes. feel like it got old the way 
there was an old movie called The Hunger. Did you ever see The Hunger? It was a vampire movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the movie, David Bowie uh, okay. goes from being like a guy in his 20s or 30s mm-hmm. and instantly ages into yeah. death, like uh-huh. over the course of about an hour. Uh-huh. Something went, went wrong. I can't remember. Yeah. But I feel like that's Molecular Orchestra, right? For I sure. feel like it didn't have the lifespan that most. We're, we're still using the term new American cuisine. Oh that goes God. back yes, to the that true. goes back to the eighties. Yes. Right? Nouvelle cuisine was a term for better or for worse mm-hmm. um uh that um you know lasted for whew, I mean ten, right. fifteen years at and least. It started many other styles. Yes, uh, and that was actually and it actually existed before it had a name. Right. Right? So but molecular I feel like people quickly learned mm-hmm. that I think you know a lot of those some of those additives and whatnot I've I've learned have are used in places that people actually don't realize. Mm-hmm. Like I know people now who use um, xanthan gum mm-hmm. to to make sure their bare blancs don't break. This this is a it's a great application. In fact, but you would but no, you would never know that because you don't think of that restaurant even as a, the restaurant I'm no. thinking of, which they probably wouldn't want me to say that. Mm-hmm. You think of it as a place that runs in a very traditional French mode. Yes, but and they're but they're using something well, that most people would think of as you know mm-hmm. the bailiwick of somebody like a Ferran Adria For or sure. yeah. Well, but that's the thing. It's like now it's become ubiquitous. Yeah, and it's it's not something that has a name anymore. Like now we use sous vide. Yeah, you know now we use yes we if we want to make sure that our sauce, you know the the water doesn't leach or separate out of it at point one percent xanthan gum and you're good. Right, and, and you're not you're not like it, it it's you're not doing anything that seems extraordinary anymore. Yes. You're just utilizing something that you know how to use. It's in your pantry. You can get Xanthagam on Amazon. It's an easy thing. It's an easy get, and it's mm-hmm. an easy fix to many things. So how would you define modernist cuisine? I think it, as the same way I would describe modernist art. It's a reaction to something that used to be, mm-hmm. uh, we wouldn't question it. We would just do it because that's how we were told to do it. Uh, you made art this way because this is how you were supposed to make art. And the modernist, with their mentality was like, we're going to take, we're going to really step very far away from this and we're going to question it um, and you know I, I have to say that when you take a deep look and a deep dive into certain things uh, and in this case food you're going to find a lot of stuff that was done because it was people do it because that's just the way it's been done yeah um, and nobody if it ain't broke don't fix it you know that it was one of those things where like if this sauce if I make stock this way it always turns out that way and why am I going to even uh, fix this? Why would I even think about grinding all of my ingredients first before making the stock to, mm-hmm. like, to, to get more flavor out of, out mm-hmm. of my, the components of my stock? Like, so these were things that that Nathan, my boss, had to think about. Sure. And they just applied to so many things. And in, in bread in particular, there were so many of those, those uh, almost folkloric myths that people associate with bread. Because bread has been hand-in-hand hand with mankind for... Since mankind has been mankind, at least in most Western countries, sure. right? Because obviously you can't talk about China and bread simultaneously. I mean, Bao being the exception, but Bao's a, you need a very soft flour for sure. that. And, and a lot of things had to happen to get that pure white, super soft flour. So that right. it's a more modernish sort of bread. So. Was there, um, you know, I think there's well, a couple of things about what you just said. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just people doing, you know, wanting to hold on to things because it's the way it's always been done. Mm-hmm. I think there's this feeling that, um, I think there's a very sort of almost masochistic strain that runs through professional cooks yeah and there's this feeling that like well let's take the bear blanc example Mm -hmm. that that's cheating Mm -hmm. right 
oh, you can't make that, You what, you can't do that naturally mm-hmm. the way I did it in cooking school? Mm-hmm. You know, then you're not as good a, as a cook as I am. You know, my reaction would be, well, if, I think there's a, almost a, I think cooks and chefs sometimes can almost forget that there's a diner uh-huh. out there that doesn't really care uh-huh. how you got from A to Z. They right. just want the dish to taste right. No, and it's, it, 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 I will always, uh, I will always argue against being willfully ignorant or not using as many resources as you can to be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the reason why we have uh, you know uh, spaceships and satellites, and we're not cooking over an open fire. Sure. To you know, we're not cavemen anymore. Yes. Is because of people who thought a little bit differently and yes. wanted to improve and make. It doesn't have to be hard to be good. Well, you don't even have to go to a spaceship. You could just go to a bike. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, you know, things with you know, wheels. All, that, yes, that and we're also you know? not going out and hunting for our own dinner anymore. No. Yeah. No. And now we do it because we want to, right? Yes. I mean, you go yeah. and if you're a hunter-chef, it's because you want to be a hunter-chef. Yes. It's not like, this is the only way I can provide a protein in my restaurant is by going hunting. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, we have options now. And, and, and to close yourself off to those things. Yes to me is 100% absurd. Uh, it, I'll say it again. It doesn't have to be hard to do to mm-hmm. be good. So. so what are some of the things, uh, you know, when we talk about modernist cuisine, what are some of the more, for lack of a better word, everyday mm-hmm. applications mm-hmm. of some of the um, techniques, mm-hmm. um, added, you know, whatever, you, whatever words you would use, what are some things that maybe uh-huh. have uh, the most sort of um, universal application that people maybe aren't aware of? No, I have a few easy good ones yeah. that, that I like to talk to people about because of that, because it's something that they can use in their everyday lives. I mean, if you make bread in your everyday life, which is not a very common thing. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of people who do it, but it's not super common. But I like to throw people these like few tips and tricks to to make their life easier with yes. bread. So for example, if we talk about bagels or pretzels or challah bread, so these are very low hydration, meaning they have they don't have a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And so these are very stiff doughs. If you mm-hmm. think about a bagel, the crumb is very tight, pretzel yeah. is also very tight. So what this means to the baker is that this dough is very hard to handle. And if you try to roll it out, it's gonna snap back like a rubber band because that gluten is just like super strong and mm-hmm. it doesn't have a lot of leeway because it's so tight. Mm-hmm. So you roll it out and it's, it rolls back up. And then you roll it out again and then you you got it to be a little bit longer, but then it's going to start pulling back in again. Right. So, like a tendon. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. So what industrial bread production has done is, you know, they, they basically purified a bunch of dough relaxers uh, that come from many different sources and they have very long names that people are afraid of. Mm-hmm. But industry uses it for those breads. So we took a lot of inspiration from those sorts of applications and and how do we make this friendly for people to use at home and it turns out that there are many dough relaxers in your refrigerator right now for example that mm-hmm. are what we i'm going to use air quotes i know this is a podcast and it's absurd to do air quotes that's okay podcast, well, not but if you say it, it. now people yeah. imagine it and they understand when i say natural ingredients mm-hmm. uh it turns out that kiwi juice pineapple juice papaya juice they have they have an enzyme that will relax dough naturally and if you literally add three drops of this dough to one kilo of bagel dough or pretzel dough, it'll relax it to make it super easy to work. Three drops of the juice. Three drops. Three literal drops. So the flavor effect is negligible. Zero. Yeah. And you can get a fruit cup at Starbucks, save the pineapple so you don't have to buy a huge pineapple. 
Um, and those three or four drops that you're going to add to the dough are going to make your life so much easier because you're going to be able to roll the dough out. It'll cooperate, and it doesn't affect the final texture. When you bake all. it, it no. does what it's always done. Yes. But it's that initial handling that's going to make your life easier. Yeah. Um, other practical applications, you know, when we took this giant leap uh, one day, and uh, we, you know, we decided to overproof bread. Right, those are one of the biggest problems that bakers at home have, which is like they forget about the dough. It over. Oh, you mean that it's resting? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, resting is a little bit different. Fermenting is when you've it's already in a basket or in a, a baking pan. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right? Okay. And so yeah. the yeast is doing all yeah, 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 all, yeah. This, all this fermentation. Work, okay. Right, is what gives yeah. us the rise. Yes. Gives us the aroma, flavor, etc. But you know, sometimes you walk away, or it's too hot in your kitchen, or you forgot about it. And you come back and it's like... And you have, a horror, you have a horror film on your hands, right? You do, because yeah. bread is not expensive in and of itself. The ingredients, what's expensive is your time. Yeah. Right? And the time you invest in this yes. bread. Um, especially, especially if you're at making it at home, it was maybe for a special occasion. Mm-hmm. Maybe you wanted to you know, give it a shot. You bought this book and you wanted to make some bread at home. Mm-hmm. And so you, you did everything, but then you forgot to set a timer. And yeah. you come back to this sad collapsed balloon. So we, we did that on purpose because in, in our, it, we had this gut feeling that we could actually rescue that, that collapsed uh, piece of dough. Can I interrupt you for one yes. second? Because I just want to be in the moment here. Uh-huh. When you say well, you had this gut feeling, uh-huh. what, what was it? Like, did you, was it based on ex- previous experimenting you had done? Was it just, a, just an instinctual thing that you can't put words to? Well, no, the gut feeling is... It is backed by by something that that we observe, which is it's something that happens with pizza dough all the time, right? You take any pizzeria will take a, a ball of dough, press the life out of it, yes. to make it flat, yeah, and then it goes in the oven and it just balloons up again, mm. like a magic act. Uh, there's doughs like focaccia dough that you you do this thing that's called stippling, which is basically like you're pressing down with your fingers, yeah, and to any person that you know maybe is not very familiar with bread it might seem like the opposite of what you want to do to it don't you want to keep it you know intact and Mm -hmm. um, you know why are you pressing down on it yeah and then you put it in the oven and you get these beautiful bubbles on the inside so the reason why those things work for those breads is because what you're doing is you're making you are popping some of the the bubbles in the dough Mm -hmm. but you're also making them stronger Mm -hmm. right think of a balloon sure will expand as much as it possibly can before it pops right yep why does it pop? Because the walls of the balloon become too thin and it just can't hold that air anymore. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing in a fermented uh, piece of dough. Yeah. Those bubbles fill up with CO2. They fill up with ethanol. Uh, but there's a point where they're just going to be, they can't hold all of that anymore. Mm-hmm. So then that's that's when your dough starts to deflate and collapse. And then it's just it's the saddest you know thing you can see. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, let's take this. It was basically a French lean dough. Uh, we over-fermented it on purpose by a lot. Like maybe like we went over an hour after it had over-fermented. So to the naked eye, it would have seemed like, you know, it's just, this is going to go in the trash. Why even bother? Mm-hmm. But we wanted to make sure that it was, it was really, really over-fermented. We took that piece of dough. We reshaped it, meaning we put it back into its, the shape that you give it to put it into a, a, a flour, mm-hmm. you know, basket to ferment. Um, and we waited. And by doing that, by re, basically reshaping it, what we did is we, we created new nucleation points, new little bubbles. And the bubbles that had collapsed 
basically what we did by reshaping it is those bubbles, they, we gave them new life by making their walls stronger, right? Mm -hmm. So now we don't have this giant bubble, now we have tiny bubbles. So these tiny bubbles are now, they have the ability to, to take air in again and expand again, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what we weren't sure about is like, is yeast still going to do anything here? Is yeast uh, and the lactic acid bacteria, they're still going to do their thing or not? And in reality, it wasn't, it wasn't a great expense to us to sacrifice one kilo of dough to find out whether it was going to work or not. Mm -hmm. um, and we put it into our fermentation box, it was 80 degrees Fahrenheit. An hour and a half later, later, it was ready to bake again. And it, was, it had a beautiful color. It was beautifully expanded. Uh, and we baked it, and it looked like a normal piece of bread. Mm -hmm. it, the crust was a, a really nice, like, you know, dark uh, brown. The crumb had a nice alveolation. It was, it was like a normal piece of bread. You didn't have that smell of, you know, typically over-fermented dough smell like alcohol. This did not. Um, so then we thought, okay, did we get lucky or should we just try this again? So we tried it again a bunch of times with a bunch of different breads, and it worked with a bunch of different breads. Uh, and then we thought, well, let's see if we can do it twice. Let's see if we can over-ferment the dough twice. Over-ferment it, bring it back, over-ferment it again. Yes. Okay. And we got greedy. We got up to 10. You did 10, let it happen 10 times. 10 times. And this, that is really just to prove a point. Because nobody, I mean, right. sure, somebody might be able to do that. Somebody yeah. might the character, the lead character in Memento. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, or, or somebody who really shouldn't be making bread. Right. Uh, or should invest. Or in using a an oven. Right. Uh, using an oven. Right. Um, and I will say that I think we stopped at ten. I seem to remember because it just started to get really tight. Like the bread yeah. just was like it was super strong. Every time you handle dough and you 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 shape it and pull yeah, yeah. and tug, you make it stronger and stronger and stronger. Which is good, but there's a point where it's too strong. And so this bread was just like, a, it was just like tense ball of dough, but it baked beautifully. It got us a beautiful color on the outside and it was still a bread that you could eat. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's one of the big pushes that we want to do in our book, which is, you know, bread is an easy thing to waste. People take it for granted. It's cheap. Uh, at least grocery store bread is cheap. Um, even artisan bread is cheap. I mean, four or five dollars for a loaf of bread is not that much to pay. No. Um, yeah, so people lose. Well, you talk about losing track of it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, proofing uh -huh. the dough, but people really lose track of, you know, the lifespan of the bread. Yes. You know, just and yeah, it's like, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's there's a little mold and right. uh, or stale. It's too late. Yeah. And there's ways to to reverse staling too, like you can reverse that in your bread just by. That's another method we developed, which is. Uh, the, if your bread is starting to feel stale to you, mm -hmm. you can wrap it in foil. Mm -hmm. You throw it in your oven, uh, and once it reaches a core temperature of 185 degrees Fahrenheit, you've essentially... Uh, I don't want to bore you with all the details of how no, it happens. No, it's not boring me at all. But yeah. what you did is you reverse staling. Staling is basically water leaching out of the starch, so the starch is not gelatinous anymore. It's not, it's not stretchy. It's mm -hmm. crystalline again. So mm -hmm. that's, that's why the bread doesn't feel stretchy anymore. It feels crumbly. Yeah. It's because the starch is, is losing all this water. It's separating out of the starch. When you get it hot again to 185 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit, you have reversed that effect. Basically, it, the water gets reabsorbed into the starch. And so the starch is again nice and stretchy. And yeah. it's, it's like you have a brand new loaf of bread. And you don't have to throw it away. Right. Okay. So... There may or may not be an answer to this. If not, I'll mm -hmm. just edit out the question. 
But I'm just curious. You mentioned a minute ago this idea of having, you know, having a gut feeling about something. Uh-huh. You are looking at things that people, a lot of people, haven't looked at at all or thought about at all. You're right. like you said, you're taught to do it. I also feel like um, it was funny. Magnus Nilsson was on this show in the mm-hmm. fall. He had his Nordic baking book come out, uh, yeah. and he talked about the difference that, that for people between eating bread, especially freshly baked bread, and almost any other kind of food. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, it, there was something very soul-satisfying about that, mm-hmm. right? So I think people, like you said, it's very much based on tradition. You were taught either by a, a, rel- you know, a relative or you were taught by a baker and a job, and, and that's how you do it, right? right? You've examined so many of these things. Mm-hmm. And you, when we started this interview, alluded to how long people have been eating bread, right? Have you ever had a moment where you feel like you have a thought about how people first happened on to yes. baking in general, about how this came into existence? Yes. and Like almost anthropologically, just well, based sure. on your own, your own trial and error and experience. Sure. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of... The common history of bread that you're going to read in most books is that the Egyptians invented bread 5,000 years ago. This is a story you hear over and over and over and over again. Uh, but that's, you, I'm assuming, strictly based on where there's some kind of indication that bread existed. Yes, but without the story well, of how they, we got they, there. They depicted a lot. Right, of what exactly. They did but without an explanation of how that happened. Right, right. Because it, you have to think that you know, there, grain has been around for a long sure. period of time, and so has mankind. Uh, there was a very interesting find in Mozambique in a cave where they found this uh, in a, it was a rock that was used for grinding. They found traces of ground up sorghum from 105,000 years ago. So what do you do with ground up sorghum? You're going to mix it with water and you're going to make something with that. Yeah. Uh, Whether that was like a you know, a flatbread or whether it was, you know, maybe people were already making beer, then it, there's this big question, what was first, beer or bread? Sure. Um, you know, it, it's it's not that different in the process one from the other. But if you have if you have found traces of pulverized sorghum, you have to wonder, well, maybe bread is not 5,000 years old. Maybe bread is at least 105,000 years old. Mm. Um, and it's it's it's... You see all these grains that are edible. They're huge, but what do you do? Well, let's take a rock and, you know, make them smaller so that we can, you know, mix them with water and they, we can eat it because you can't eat a grain as it is, you know. So that's already mankind thinking about how to utilize this thing that they found in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but there isn't a trace. You can't say bread. Bread was invented at this, you know, moment in time exactly. No, but I don't mean that. But I meant how, like you just talked about mixing flour and water, and then uh-huh. you'd have to get to the place where it does whatever version right. of baking there was. Right. Right? Well, but nobody, and the thing is also with that is that nobody really knew about fermentation until Louis Pasteur came along. Right. Everything before that was done intuitively. Yeah. Okay, you mix water and flour, you're going to get a bubbly thing yeah. in a few days, and so then use that bubbly thing, or, you know, go to the brewer and take barm, which is that, that yeah. you know, that, that foam that is on top of the, the, uh, the brewing beer. And bakers would mix that into water and flour. They didn't know why it worked. 
But it's just like it's one of these things like, well, it works, it works. And mm-hmm. it, it, it was almost like sorcery at that point. Right. Uh, until Louis Pasteur explained it away. You know, so the mi- discovering microbiology gave everybody the answers that they, they were looking for when sure. it came to bread fermentation. And eventually we were able to isolate Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the yeast strand that we use for bread. Yeah. And that's what gave us um, uh, commercial yeast. You know, yep. you, could get, you can now get it at your grocery store. Sure. Right? So... Okay, the flip side of the same question. Mm-hmm. If we're here in the modernist moment, right? Yes. And I think there is this tendency. One of my favorite one-liners of all time was the comedian Gilbert Gottfried said, mm-hmm. you know, that he wondered if people in ancient Rome walked around saying, boy, this is a long time ago, <laughs> right? Because that's <laughs> right. what our point of view is, yeah, that we're yeah. sort of like, you know, yeah. you you know, we kind of feel like we're living in, this is it, right? right. But obviously mm-hmm. things will continue to evolve and sure. change. So if we're in the modernist moment right now, mm-hmm. do you have any sense of, do you have like a, a sense of what a postmodernist movement might look like or are, are there things mm-hmm. uh, effects results things that you kind of dream of mm-hmm. but haven't figured out how to do yet that maybe you think will be the next part of the next generation so I you know I think there was a after this whole molecular gastronomy moment yeah there was almost a response to it to go in the opposite totally. direction yeah. completely cooking with fire and you know, like going back to, you know, like these ancient forms of cooking, which can produce delicious food if you know how to do it and how to harness fire. I mean, that's, you know, the asador at Chibari that uh, I, all they do is cook with fire. And it's so beautiful to look. It's like that's an amazing place, but not everybody can do that. Yes. You know, um, there's, you know, fire is all good and well, but it's it's very tricky. It's very hard to cook properly with that. I don't want to go into this tangent of cooking with fire, but my point is that, I think that we're, you know, I don't know where the future of, of food is going, uh, but there's, they're very, I haven't gotten excited about many things in a while. The molecular gastronomy thing was exciting. Yeah. Right? It was just like, holy cow. I mean, like, I'm sure back in the day, uh, uh, Nouvelle Cuisine was yep. to a lot of chefs. Yeah. Uh, it's a new thing. We could do things differently. I think that there's still a lot of lessons that we took from molecular gastronomy or that style that helped us think that there's there's more than a few ways to skin a cat um, and that there's no one right way to do things you know and that's that's what I think modernism is uh, are we living in a postmodern uh, gastronomic era I don't know because when when did, did modernism when did something some began point, when or, does it yeah, end you right, don't really don't know, know until later yeah know, but but I would definitely say that you know, if, if we had to, you know, like come out with a second edition of Modernist Cuisine, yeah. I think we would take a very close look at some of those things and see like, well, are, do people still have use for some of these things in here? Or do we shorten this and expand on that? You know, what are, right. where is gastronomy now versus yeah. where it was when the book came out? I mean, the book came out in 2011. It yeah. was like right it's at the amazing. cusp. amazing it's been that long already. Uh, it, yeah. It, it is. I mean, it, we're looking at nine, eight years now yeah. that the well, book came out. And it took five years to write. So you got to also like tie that in because yeah. they had already been thinking in those terms. Well, right? to your point, there was a book just maybe two, three years ago called uh, What If We're Wrong? Do you know mm-hmm. that? By Chuck Klosterman. I, I'm familiar with him, but I'm not familiar with that book. And it's it's the subtitle was something like Looking at the Present Through the mm-hmm. Lens of the Future, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the point was that very often, well, first of all, when you when historians come along, I went through this experience writing my book, right? There's, mm-hmm. You can't include everybody. Oh, no. so, mm-hmm. so the past becomes whittled down, mm-hmm. right? So reggae music 
will be, you know, Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff, one or two other people, and that'll be reggae music, Mm -hmm. you know? William Shakespeare was not the only person writing plays during his lifetime, right? But who else could most people name, right? right? Um, And when you just said, maybe if you would go back at some point already, Mm -hmm. just uh, eight years later, and reevaluate modernist Mm -hmm. cuisine, Mm -hmm. you might emphasize certain things and de-emphasize other things. And there really is no way to know any of that until you're in the future. Exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, there's things that, you know, if we explain how ovens work they'll always work the same way. Yeah. I mean, the, the information that exists on things like that, how steaming works, how frying foods, yeah. like those things, they still have that application. But there's, you know, if you have a recipe for, you know, spherified olives, I mean, no, they're delicious. I mean, every time I go to Barcelona, I go to tickets and, and I have those olives because they're just fantastic. Um, but who, nobody's doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing that anybody has any interest in doing anymore. Mm-hmm. So why, like, how much real estate are you going to give something like that? Yes. In a book that, you know, 10, 15 years after it published, does, it, does that really matter or what matters now? Yeah. Um, so that's a huge question, and I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. Right Interesting. Can you, uh, drastically different note, this will be in the past, by the speaking of the future, mm-hmm. but you're doing a, a dinner tomorrow night. Yes. Here in San Diego. Yes. Uh, with Claudette, who is also on this, ep- on this episode of the show. Uh-huh. Can you just tell me a little bit about that collaboration and how you two have approached that and yeah uh, again this will have already happened so i'm not plugging it uh-huh. but i'm just curious to know you know somebody with your orientation uh-huh. somebody who comes to things the way you do uh-huh. how did you two go about figuring out what you were going to do and what's that going to look like so the the theme of these dinners is you know like food memory food memorias is what she calls it so it's spanglish uh we're i was born in mexico mm-hmm. she's born in mexico too uh, we're, but my, I was born in Mexico, but my dad is from Spain and my, my mom was from uh, Queens, New York. Okay. Uh, you have some Italian in your, in your yeah, my, ancestry now? Yeah, my mom is, she's Italian American. Yeah. Yep. So I was born in Mexico. So that was, it, it was a big part of my culture, but I also had a lot of European like influence in, in, you know, growing up. But I have a, I mean, obviously a huge place in my heart for Mexico, sure. uh, especially in current day. And it's not, I don't want to get into all of that political stuff, but in present day I have, I have develop more of a uh, I guess a sensitivity to that Mexicanness and what it means to be Mexican of course uh, what it means to be Mexican in American country and so forth and so she's uh, she has her restaurant here it's a Mexican restaurant but it's not like a taqueria she always has a hard time explaining it to people and I, I get why because people want to go there and have tacos and she's like, we don't do tacos. And they're like, well, what do you mean we don't do tacos? So it, she has her work cut out. For so her isn't that amazing in yeah. 2019 it amazing. in a fairly well, cosmopolitan area? It's well, there's that amazing. and there's also the assumption that Mexican cooking should be cheap. Well, right? that's a whole. I, that's, and so then yes. she has the people who ask for tacos and that are like, why is this restaurant so expensive? So, mm-hmm. But she's trying to do something that I, I, I want to support, which is to have like give people this vision of Mexican cuisine that can be very elevated mm-hmm. um, without being, you know, overly pretentious. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's so many layers of flavor in Mexican cuisine. I don't have to explain it to you. I mean, this is, this is, it's, it's one of my favorite foods, of course, because I was born there. Yeah. But there's just so much variety. So we knew each other, f- in, interestingly, from social media. And, you know, and then we started following each other and then, yeah. you know, we started, you know, messaging each other. And a couple of years ago, she asked me, hey, we should do, we should do a dinner at some point. 
And so it's one of those conversations that's like, yeah, okay, we'll talk about it. You know, it's it's always in the future. You never, it may or may not happen. You mean it when you say it, right? But then you have to figure out when to when the hell to Actually do it. Actually, doing yeah. it is a whole nother story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the reason why I I I agreed to do it and and like be firm about doing it was because I wanted this dinner to be to benefit. Um, it's this this uh, it's an association called Raices Texas. Oh it's, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, basically, yeah. it's 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 it, they provide attorneys for children who are in cages in mm-hmm. Texas right now, mm-hmm. which is I, I I'm I, I can't describe in words how horrendous that is. Well, but, the only time I think I've ever gone on a rant, a political rant on this mm-hmm. show, and I heard those of you who think I should keep that out of the show, mm-hmm. but just to mention it since we're having this conversation uh-huh. was that week right I opened the show and I was just I was like I can't not use this but whatever this happening. platform is and it's still yes. happening it yes. hasn't gone away no and so this I, everything all of the proceeds from this dinner are going to go to benefit Raices Texas mm-hmm. um, and so it, it, I didn't just want to go and have a dinner to you know I mean, of course, I want people to be happy and enjoy their meal. Yeah. But I don't have anything to gain from it. Yes. But collaborating with a, a chef I respect uh, and making sure that, you know, there was a cause behind it. Um, and so that's the main reason. And also it coincided that they invited me uh, to do this this talk here at Chef's Roll. So the stars aligned for mm-hmm. it, you know. And so, th- so that it, it, it made, like... Saying no at this point would have been absurd. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's it's like the universe saying, you know, putting everything in place so that you guys can do this. So you might, yes. you should just do it. Yeah. So, and what are you serving there? Uh, so we're doing six courses. I'm doing a bread course, which is a, a sourdough that I made with. Uh, it's called huitlacoche, which is uh-huh, a, sure. Unfortunately, it's called corn smut in English. Which, corn smut or corn fungus? Corn, I think people well, say. Which one is worse? Yes, <laughs> but that that's the same thing, it's right? The same that's, thing. Yeah, it's the fungus that grows on corn yep. during the rainy season, which yep. is delicious. So I made a sourdough with that, um, and so there's a, a it's the course is sourdough with a mole butter, uh, toasted uh, seeds mm-hmm. on top, and she's doing three savory courses, which I have to be honest, I don't remember on the top of my that's head fine. what they are right mm-hmm. now. Uh, but I'm doing uh, two dessert courses. I'm doing a, a prickly pear sorbet mm-hmm. uh, uh, with it's in, it's like a, uh, a sorbet sandwich. It's in a in a cookie made with hoja santa, which uh-huh. in English is called root beer sassafras. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah, it's that uh, flavor, right? Yeah, so it's a it's a and it you know I made it so that it looked like a cactus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our, the dessert is going to be it's a it's. It's a dessert that is executed with French technique, but with Mexican flavors. Oh, cool! Uh, so it's it's a it's 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 different layers, different components. There's like a Mexican cinnamon chantilly in there. There's a, a Mexican chocolate. It's a thing that's called a cremu, which is like a creamy custard base, uh, and it's basically various components. Um, it's very cool because we're serving it. Uh, it's in the shape of a flower, and so it's it's. I named it after one of my uh, grandfather's favorite songs, which is called La Feria de las Flores. Okay. Um, and he's he was a Spaniard, but he was he embraced. He came to Mexico and he yep. completely embraced the country. And one of his favorite songs was that song, and so it's named after my grandfather, uh, after my grandfather's favorite song. And then we're I'm gonna do a few miñardis based on like really. Not very good Mexican candies, but done in a way, if they were properly done, what they would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm doing a couple of those. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, 
you know, we're seating 50 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be a nice event. I mean, sounds great. It, sounds so. great. Um, so, last question for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you you I I had a great conversation with Claudette today, and she mm-hmm. was talking about um, you know the restaurant as she thinks about it as a way of expressing her past, present, and future, mm-hmm. right? And she wants her food to be very emotional. Mm-hmm. You have a very strong connection to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the dinner's called food Memor- memorias food memorias yes mm-hmm. so that's a that's an emotional notion mm-hmm. um, you know i think a lot of people might hear a term like modernist cuisine mm-hmm. and think that that's antithetical yes to creating food that has a soul soulful. Yep. soulful you we just said the same word at the mm-hmm. same time yeah. right but there is even to memory there is science right mm-hmm. uh, people say that the olfactory sense yes accounts I don't know if they still say this when I was in grade school they used to say accounts for 90% of uh, sure. taste well, well, and yeah. is also the most powerful trigger of for memory, memory yes. right so I'm wondering is it actually the opposite of what people think do, do, do you feel like you have knowledge mm-hmm. and uh, capabilities where you, again it's a weird thing to talk about in such a calculated way mm-hmm. but where you can actually maybe ha- Create a deeper mm-hmm. connection to the food through this this sort of information. Well, or is it a push no, and it doesn't matter? No aroma. The, the so does that question make sense? It does, and I hope my answer makes sense. Okay, if if I understand I'll try to the keep question up. correctly. Yeah. So uh, the the dessert I explained earlier, it's 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 it looks like you're eating a flower. Yeah. But what it what I did is I I'm serving it inside this clear acrylic box that's going to be filled with Mexican flowers. Mm. Uh, and what I'm doing is I'm, I'm making a, a very aromatic uh, infusion of flowers that we're going to pour into these other f- into this acrylic box. So when it comes to your table, you have all this aroma mm. that is surrounding you. But it's not it's not like it smells like cheap perfume. It's like it's these it's a beautiful very nuanced scent of flowers. Yeah. Um, that are part of the component of the dessert. Mm-hmm. It's an element that I'm adding that is not something that you can actually taste, but it's an aroma that's going to influence how you're going to taste the dessert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, did, did that answer Yeah, well, question? you said specifically Mexican flowers. Yes. So I assume the scent sure. or the aroma has a meaning to you personally. It does. And it, it might to somebody else in there, or it might have a different version. Right, but I'm saying it's there. not like, it's not strictly there. as It is there for flavor or for the for the aroma, but not straight. In other words, it's no, like for years now, people have been, you know, dishes come uh, from the kitchen to a table sometimes with a time, a time sprig, oh, you sure. know, uh-huh. it, that's been lit, right? right? And and it's, but that's just, that's, mm-hmm. there's not a memory anyone's trying to evoke no. with that usually, mm-hmm. right? But in this case, it's a double effect in your, yes. for you. It's, yeah, it's, that answer makes total sense to me. And it, it, but if I didn't know that I could do these things, like if, if, I have a bigger toolkit because I mm-hmm. have science and an understanding of science and how I can use that toolkit. Yeah, and and not strictly to have a to general not strictly in service of a physical result. Right. I guess that it's interesting to me. We both had the word soul come out yeah. of our mouths at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah, because that is what I meant. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people think about you Cold, know calculated. Yeah, that it's all and, scientific. And and, well, yeah. I don't know if it goes. Yeah, but it's you know, but but that it is very you know that you might be sacrificing something else that mm-hmm. people associate with food, uh-huh. um, because of that approach. Right. No, I mean, imagine if a doctor thought that way. Right. We'd all be dead. Right. Or we wouldn't have 
the, what we have these days. Right. I mean, why is kitchen excluded from science? Because yeah. why? I mean, I can't understand a reasonable explanation to, not. to willfully yeah. be ignorant about yeah. science. Yeah. Well, it's um, the line I always think of. Did you ever see the movie The Fly? This is a weird the thing fly? to bring up with yeah, Jeff, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum, the David Cronenberg yeah. film. Uh-huh. Well, there's early on he's trying to, first of all, if anyone out there hasn't seen it, it's oh, a spoiler, right? Well, it's a brilliant film. It's a brilliant. I think it's a brilliant film. Yes. I think it's. I also can't watch it. I find it unbelievably disturbing. It is very well made. Um, but uh, and Jeff Goldblum is brilliant. But that's all beside the point. He is trying to create a, like a transporter machine. Uh-huh. So he has two pods in his loft, living space slash lab, mm-hmm. and he keeps. Um, I think this is actually what the problem was with some of these, uh, you know, fake burgers people have been trying to make, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he keeps tran- trying to trans uh, transport animals and they mm-hmm. keep coming out horribly, horribly, uh-huh. disgustingly wrong. Yeah. And then, and Gina Davis, who's his girlfriend mm-hmm. in the movie, says um, the machine isn't crazed with the flesh. Like the machine doesn't understand, mm-hmm. you know, flesh. life. Yeah, organic matter. organic matter, life, mm-hmm. flesh, live right, mm-hmm. and that's like his breakthrough moment. He realizes he needs to find a way to program that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's mm-hmm. what I think of when I think about right. people who approach, in my opinion, mm-hmm. what you do in the right way, mm-hmm. right, and people who got swept up in the thing we started this interview talking about. Right. Is that a crazy analogy? No, it's a pretty good analogy because it's it's you either have a superficial understanding of it, yes, or you want to take the deep dive. And we take the deep dive. Yeah. And, and we hope that that deep dive, people could get, like, if they get a few morsels from that and it's something that they can use, that's our purpose. Yes. You know? I mean, that, that, is, that is the main objective. Great. Uh, thank you for your time. This was great. It was great to meet you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's our show for this week. Caitlin. Andrew. I need you here every week. <laughs> I can't promise that. No, 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 no. we got to do this every week. I, yeah. I love that we did... This is not one of those things where we do it the morning of. Yes. But I just need... I need you to be a part of this every week. It really makes the show better. Okay. <laughs> Listen to me. Okay, I'm listening. Listen to how happy I am. I'm listening. Okay. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I want to thank our guests. Barbara Lynch, Claudette... Excuse me. Claudette Zepeda Wilkins, Ken Frank... Francisco Magoya, Naisha Arrington, to the people at Chef's Roll, especially Cindy and Franz for being such amazing hosts when I was there, to Jeremiah Tower and his old crew who we're going to hear from on a future episode in the next couple of weeks. Thanks to you guys as well. To everyone at Heritage, especially G. Paul, our engineer, for splicing these things together. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. And we will see you back here after our mid-season hiatus on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.